Warning, this show contains adult themes and language, including no death for once. Disevidentia is an inability to reliably process evidence, and this is a podcast all about it. This episode was released on November 22nd, 2021, and we are discussing Disevidentia because it is clear millions of ancient alien astronaut enthusiasts are suffering from it. I am Squeaky. And I am Mako. We discuss logic and evidence because someone has to pick up History Channel's slack. You can support us by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash If you spent all of your money carving giant megaliths for alien spaceships to land on in your backyard, you can still like, subscribe, and leave a review to help us out. If you have a paper you have written or a small business to plug, let us know. Today we are going to discuss Anunnaki and ancient aliens. But first, Squeaky is going on a rant. Is that date correct? Look correct. I feel like I used my 2022 calendar. Uh, I mean, 15 plus 7 is in fact 22. That's how math works? Yes. Hmm. For writing software so long, I can only do plus one and minus one. Uh-huh. So many people are talking about freedom. Freedom to run their businesses how they want. Freedom to skip the vaccine. Freedom to say anything at any time. These same people never talk about responsibility. Responsibility to not discriminate in hiring practices. Responsibility to not infect people with preventable diseases. Responsibility for the results of what they say. In some places... It is illegal to discriminate based on gender or race when hiring. Even in places where it is legal, it is generally shunned. The people clamoring for the freedom to discriminate when hiring are the first to complain when that freedom is used against them. They choose not to understand that reciprocity is the responsibility of all members of a society. The people demanding freedom to be unvaccinated are at best uneducated. Often, when they are on death's door from COVID... They are demanding the vaccine. At that point, it's too late. They would know that if they hadn't shirked their responsibility to understand their own decisions. Likely, they wouldn't be anti-vax if they had responsibly educated themselves. People ignore the results of their words while demanding the freedom to say anything. For many, this just means creating an environment hostile to people different from themselves. But for many with a platform, it means creating a hostile society. That is exactly what some people want. Horrible people. Most of the people defending public displays of discrimination and similar bullshit are the first to complain when they're excluded from spaces specifically to be safe from their intolerant bullshit. When a 17-year-old kid brings a gun to a protest that he had no business being at, the people sharing the ideas that got him there share in the responsibility. What pisses me off the most about this is when these people ignore that they have the freedom to express these fucked up views because they are in a position where their problems in these areas are already solved. You don't hear rich white guys complaining about racist or misogynist hiring practices. These are pretty much the only people claiming these issues don't exist. When I say rich, I don't mean wealthy. Plenty of middle-class folk are deluded here too. Only people who have been living in a mostly disease-free society have the opportunity to complain about vaccines. People living with endemic polio and measles are clamoring for vaccines, and they did in the U.S. when those were problems here, too. Only people who are free from rampant disease death are free to complain about vaccines. Now we have people complaining about freedom of speech when they have uncensored microphones and want to say things that get other people killed. I don't mean just that one trial, or just anti-vaxxers. Many are doing it. 
I feel that freedoms implicitly come with responsibilities, and I'm going to start pointing that out when talking with people about any of these issues. I'm still getting people who tell me, what about my freedom to be unvaccinated? And I'll start with, what about your responsibility to be educated? That is partially an appeal to emotion, but they weren't responding to facts anyway. It takes a little bit of a mental warm-up for this kind of skull buttery. I don't fucking know. You wouldn't need a mental warm-up if your brain were smoother. You're not wrong. Why would I want smooth brain? So, how's it been, Mako? It's been a whole two weeks since we've had an episode. It's been okay. So, everybody and their brother, going so far as to have all of the Democrats of Nebraska, came out and corrected me on my pronunciation of Sam Hain. <laughs> Wow. No kidding. The following day, I was listening to another podcast. The The Knowledge Fight guys and the Cognitive Dissonance guys both pronounce it better. They called it Sam uh, Sam Wen or Sawen. Either of those are apparently the appropriate pronunciation. Yeah, something about it not originally being English. Yeah, old Gaelic, Celtic. So, yeah, you know, applying English pronunciation, however clear it may seem at a glance, is uh, apparently not quite correct. This is what we get for not checking every single word through a pronunciation filter. Yeah. Nah, it's what happens when you learn by reading stuff. Sometimes you say archipelago. Bone apple No, wait, no, that's pronunciation. <laughs> uh, other corrections. Uh, two episodes ago, so in episode 19 in the COVID Minute, I called it, I think we both called it emergency standard of care. We meant to say crisis standard of care. And then in one part of the Halloween discussion, I said nowhere in Europe had trick-or-treating before 1900, uh, but there were some uh, places where it was in Scotland as much as five years before that. So depending on whether or not... Yeah, you... I, I didn't really correct it at the time because I couldn't find obvious uh, sources on that. I had it in one of the sources, the 1895 thing, huh. but it's just... Uh, some people in Scotland will say that you know, the UK isn't part of Europe and they wouldn't care about a correction, but some other listeners cared. Like Americans are like, nope, the UK is definitely part of Europe. Yep. I don't know. Okay. We get corrections from different people. Yep. And one other minor oversight. I said, and this was just one of our passing conversations about bird extinction, I think. I called them passenger pigeons at least once, and I meant to say carrier pigeon each time. Hmm. I would like to thank the Secular Democrats of Nebraska for their corrections. It's nice to know that a group like that even exists. I will go ahead and plug them in the show notes. And if you want to correct us on things we've said or done wrong, there's a whole bunch of ways to do that. So one way to definitely get our attention is to go to patreon.com slash and give us money. We will definitely notice. So and thank you to our new Patreon supporter, Kaiju Helena. There's also our subreddit, which is just reddit.com slash r slash on Twitter at disevidentia, on Discord, and the link is incomprehensible. We'll put it in the show notes. Email contact at disevidentia. We also have a YouTube channel and, of course, disevidentia.com. On to COVID? Well, class sports. Oh, yeah. We did want to let a listener know class of sports. We did get a, a paper to read from them, but we're going to make sure that we go over that and give it a, a little bit of time. We only got it just uh, earlier today before the recording, so we didn't want to gloss over anything. Yeah. Cover it next episode. Cool. Or we'll get back to them. Yeah. We won't cover everything necessarily, but presuming it's something worthwhile. It was about the uh, Pledge of Allegiance and how susceptible uh, young people are to manipulation. Seems like it's right up our alley, so. A bit, yeah. Shasta's bark was awfully loud. Yep, that almost certainly picked that up. She's an adorable puppy, but can you not yelp right when we're at the end of a good long one? <laughs> not a good long one. Giggity. So there's been a fair bit of COVID news. Uh, definitely an uptick since the last time we covered it. It was starting to get quiet, kinda. 
Yeah, there'd been a fewer celebrities talking about it for a while there, and not a lot of new medical advances. There's a new COVID pill that they're giving out. Yep. So it's nice that there's more treatments. I don't know that we need to go too in-depth on that here. No. If you get COVID, and if it gets bad enough, I presume doctors will get it to you. Yeah, we have more in our arsenal to fight COVID infections than we did before, which is good. But then there's the bad. Oh, you mean Aaron Rodgers? Well, I was talking about the uh, upward trend of COVID. Oh, that's... Yeah, okay, you're right. Deaths and cases are probably worse. Pretty much everywhere on the globe, case count is increasing. I pulled some numbers for Europe, I pulled numbers worldwide, and I pulled some numbers for the U.S. Yep. In most places, deaths and case counts track each other pretty closely. But here in the U.S., they are starting to diverge. So we've had more cases... But the death count is going down, indicating that the availability of monoclonal antibodies and these other treatments and you know, just generally not having the healthcare system under such a heavy load is making it easier for people to get the treatment they need. Yep. COVID is being a little bit less lethal compared yeah. to before. Yeah. But all of our previous spikes for COVID coincided with the holiday season, and we are now entering the holiday season. So... Didn't we have one over summer, like right around the 4th of July and or Memorial Day? Yeah, okay, never mind. <laughs> they weren't as aggressive as the, the Thanksgiving ones. Yeah, Thanksgiving you, ones were always very aggressive. Yeah, you can see it in the charts. It's kind of ludicrous. Yeah. <sighs> so yeah, if you are meeting with family for the holidays, make sure everyone's vaccinated and boosted if that's appropriate for your situation. Mm -hmm. And try to keep it small. We're having a few people over for Thanksgiving, but it's going to be, I think, 10 total family members. So it's going to be pretty small. Try yeah. to minimize the risk. And we're all vaccinated. Almost all of us have boosters who can. And um, yeah, I'd still get my booster. Yeah, you you have just the J&J, &J, don't you? Yeah. It's one of the less effective ones against Delta. I mean, it's still better than not being vaccinated, but yeah. once you get it combined with the Moderna or Pfizer, you'll be like... And it's been about six months, so it's uh, effectiveness has waned. I was speaking with the person when I got my booster. Apparently, if you got the J&J, &J, the new rules are you can get a booster two months after. Huh, that's both great and terrifying. You don't, you don't have to. I think, no. the, I think right now they're still thinking that if this goes on like this, it's going to be six-month boosters for everybody. Yeah. And if that happens, everyone with the boosters is going to be very safe, as long as you don't use homeopathic boosters. You're staring at me like you have no clue what I'm talking about. No, I I mean, I can put those words together. I know what you're getting at, and I'm just thinking those aren't boosters. Well, I'm going back to Aaron Rodgers. Okay. So, professional athlete, star quarterback, I don't know, something. He's good at sports, I guess. But for some reason, people thought that meant that they should listen to him for anything else. And uh, he claimed to have been vaccinated. In a press conference, he was point-blank asked if he was interview interviewed. He was point-blank asked if he was vaccinated. The hell was I trying to say? Injected. That's what I was trying to combine injected and vaccinated and I got interviewed. Whatever. And he said yes and he felt it wasn't a lie because he had used a homeopathic vaccine. Okay, that's an interesting claim. So he got COVID, exposed it to a bunch of people, and he contacted Joe Rogan for medical advice. Yeah, even Joe Rogan says he's not an expert, don't listen to him for medical advice. Well, that didn't stop Aaron Rodgers. Of course not. He did the whole ivermectin thing, he was benched for a little while, the status of that changed the past couple days, but I don't follow sports too well, so I don't know what the current status of it is, except to say, we definitely shouldn't be listening to athletes for medical advice. Definitely not. We I first heard about it in a Reddit discussion, but I verified it. It's been all over the news. So we've got NBC Sports. Uh, I like the Wikipedia summary. It's just a great no-bullshit summary. They even bring up a couple of the names. They, ca <laughs> uh, they call him Karen Rogers or Throw Rogan. I just, Interesting I, names. What? He's he's just taking Joe Rogan's advice, and but he can throw the ball. So, yeah. Anyway, and then there's also uh, New York Post. They're not a great news source, but they, they have a link to the video. And uh, 
sources. I got three different links to Reuters for the different regions for COVID numbers. Was there anything else we wanted to discuss there? Anything you had on COVID? Not particularly. All right, on to Anunnaki. Yep. Fun times. <laughs> Dark Citizen go bird. Not again. Human, assume the anal probe position. What the shit, Squeaky? Who gave you a crane? Did you feel like you were being abducted by aliens? I swear to Zeus. Well, if you don't feel abducted, we can't really use that as research. You destroyed my computer. Eh, you can get a new, better one custom made at abkcustoms.com. Is that abk-kustomz.com? Sure is. I know some of the crew over there. They're smart and eager to please. Oh, wait, wait, wait. How will I afford a computer after paying for a new roof? You should use code EVIDENCE. You'll get 10% off your new custom computer. But a new roof is in the thousands. It's like, oh, I still have this crane. Let me put that roof back on. You can't just... Here, you can hold it on with this roll of duct tape. Uh, thanks. Now get out. Okay. I need to another moment to mentally prepare for this transition. So, ancient aliens and Anunnaki. Yep. I know there's a subtle distinction between these two things. One is sort of a subcategory of the other, or... Anunnaki is a subcategory of ancient aliens, yes. Yeah, and then that's both tangentially related to the concept of ancient astronauts, which is just... Uh, near as I can tell, ancient astronauts and ancient aliens are pretty much synonymous. When I've been talking to people, they've uh, been reserving the ancient astronaut label for the people, the humans, as opposed to the extraterrestrial component of it. But it, it is always related to extraterrestrials. Yeah. I guess on that, mm-hmm. trying to look at the look at this from the outside in, the first thing we tried to do was get a get an idea of what these people believe. Yeah. We want to have something that, as close as we can get to a concrete claim for us to look at the possibility of, to investigate, to see if we can gather any evidence for. Yeah, so I started some discussions on Reddit. Nothing major or amazing, but I did ask what people believe, what good sources were. We spoke with someone who uh, has a close emotional tie to someone who fervently believes in Anunnaki and asked them what this person believes. I mean, there are some themes, but in terms of getting at truth, there's no consistency. Yeah, not really. So uh, some of the themes are, uh, like so many conspiracy theories, are do your own research and don't trust experts and scientists. Oh, yeah, you got a comment where somebody was like, make sure they're vetted? Yeah, make sure that whatever the person is saying is vetted. And I'm like, vetted by who? I'm like, make sure the author, the author. vets it. It's like, <laughs> it's like, well, well I mean, they could just say that. Like, how how is that vetting? Yeah, it's, well, this person probably trusts Zacharias Sitchin. They're, well, no, okay. If I were to give them benefit of the doubt, they were probably saying something along the lines of, make sure your source shows their work. And they're from the conspiracy theory subreddit. That's, that's like I said, I'm, too much credit. That's just, that's maximum giving them benefit of the doubt. But, okay. Uh, even then, like these people are in a position where I have to question whether or not they know what showing your work in this regard looks like. <laughs> uh, they do like to do things like disregard experts, particularly on what hieroglyphics or ancient Sumerian writings mean. Yeah. We mentioned it in our previous episode, the Deep Space Deep Dive. Yeah, where we touched on Anunnaki before. There's a 
complete translations of all of the examples of Sumerian writing that we have, for example, because so many of these beliefs are that aliens visited ancient Sumeria and gave these people something. Yeah, not just Sumeria, but you know, other ancient civilizations like Egyptians as well. Yeah, so when somebody comes along and then translates and says, I've retranslated this tablet and it says aliens showed up and interbred with humans, that's a... Uh, that's some bullshit if we've yeah. already translated that tablet as like in a the, ledger for corn trading or whatever. In the case of Sitchin, he was trying to make these claims while having no background in Sumerian text that we were able to find. I mean, that's very generous implying that. Well, that much is <laughs> like we can't say for sure that he didn't pick up a textbook at some point and try to teach himself Sumerian. Okay, I, so, I, that's fair. I'm just imagining a guy back in the 60s and 70s and 80s getting a whole bunch of Sumerian tablets mailed to him and decoding them from scratch at home. Yeah. <laughs> I highly doubt this happened, but it's possible, I guess. Regardless how the skill did or did not form, the other experts who do make a regular job of translating Sumerian texts all disagreed with him. And more with the, the disagreeing, stepping away from Sitchin, the different members of the community believe different things. Yeah. And I asked uh, the skeptic subreddit as well, and the skeptic subreddit seemed to be in, under the impression that a lot of people believe the History Channel's Ancient Aliens series. Pretty much nobody does, even in the conspiracy theory groups. Everyone was panning that over there too because it's so obviously bullshit. And I tried watching an episode. They're all up on YouTube now, so... Regrettably. Good job, History Channel, continuing to destroy your credibility for likes. But uh, they're more mixed when it comes to books and more in-depth content. Even though all the conspiracy theorists appear to dislike the History Channel content, some of them say Sitchin is a good source, some of them say it's not. Some of them say, specifically, Chariot of the Gods is a good source, some say it's not. So they're all suggesting that you do your own research and vet it, and that you not rely on anyone else's research and vetting, ignoring how that's really hard or impossible. And none of the conspiracy theory people seem to go to academia. No. So that's problematic. Not that we were able to see, anyway. So yeah, so our listener, who, uh has that connection with someone. He did have some very specific beliefs that this person, that this uh, ancient alien believer subscribed to. Yeah. I know you did some more research on, on these, but he was a big believer that, well, scientists are lying. But that, God, I can't say this without laughing. And this is a common thread. This this is not just this one person, but lots of people believe that oh yeah that humans couldn't do it, whatever it is. You know, build some monument. People have it in their heads that these are ancient peoples with a very very limited means, and they couldn't really do anything extravagant or marvelous as a result of their limitations. And depending how we define marvelous, that might be true, right? You're not going to see any microchips or electrical lights before there's infrastructure to make electricity. So. Yeah, you can still do marvelous things, but it's going to be on the order of let's make fantastic stoneworks and woodworks, metalworks. Yep. But you, you're not going to see a rocket ship or a spaceship. So these people dig around for evidence of rocket ships and try to make it seem like clearly somebody else intervened. Uh, another belief was that the Baghdad battery, which we've talked about that before. Yeah. Right? We're not even certain it was a battery, and if it was, it was likely just used for electroplating. So, actually, I have, do you want me to cover that in detail right now? Because I did actively research that one. Okay, so let's let's save that for just a moment. Sure. But let's, go, let's finish up with the beliefs. Yeah. This person believes that the Baghdad battery was used for light. Yeah. Out of hand, that's ridiculous. Yes. Because that requires infrastructure, making LEDs or light bulbs requires knowledge of vacuums, glass blowing, fancy wires that are either tungsten or bamboo. None of that existed in ancient Egypt. A person claims lasers were used to cut blocks, but that's ridiculous also because we see tool marks. Right? We see like mm -hmm. lines where saws were used. 
This person believes that the Anunnaki, this group of, of ancient aliens, came to Earth to mine gold. Which is stupid for a whole bunch of reasons that we'll cover, I'm sure. Yeah. And this person picks on little words like kingship or various ancient god beliefs to try to insert a powerful extraterrestrial entity and say that this was God. And this is one person. And every person who believes these things is going to believe something slightly different. So trying to approach it is going to be very difficult. So what you should do is get Mako to research it for you. Oh my god. <laughs> sorry, sorry. You did do the bulk of the research for this next segment, though. Yes, I did. And, and yeah, I did focus my research on these specific claims. And there's more to the whole Anunnaki ancient aliens thing than we could cover in one episode, probably more than we can cover in 10 episodes. I did focus my research on the claims that are being made by this one specific person. And there is a lot to ancient aliens and Anunnaki. So like more than there we would be able to cover in probably even 10 episodes. We're probably not going to do 10 episodes on all of this. But yeah, we need to focus somewhere. And I decided to focus focus on the claims from this individual person. We discussed this earlier, and you didn't like this analogy, or this whatever. I pointed out how easy it is to make up bullshit, yeah. and how hard it is to debunk bullshit. Yeah. People can make bullshit literally faster than we can just talk about it. So, as soon as we make ten episodes, there'll be ten more episodes worth of content. Well, okay, that is both awesome and terrible. Because if they feel that they need to make up new bullshit, then that means they are moving the goalposts, they are acknowledging what we are saying, and they're moving the goalposts on our account. Oh, that would be pretty awesome. I was just thinking they're making bullshit because that's how they make money. Well, some of them do, yes. I'd imagine most of the people we got feedback from on Reddit, they're not making money off of this. That's probably true. But they're making bullshit for their own reasons, a lot of them. Well, they just feel it's correct. That's how these things usually go. <sighs> I'm glad they're trying to be correct. At least they're wrong, honestly. Regrettably. <sighs> so, what topics... What topics do we have? Where do we want to start for this? Okay, so the one that you particularly picked on, the Great Pyramids is one place where I did focus, and the specific claim that humans could not have made them. But they're so big, of course humans couldn't make them. Well, so the size of the pyramids is one part of the claim. The size of the stones that were used is another part of the claim. They're so precisely cut. Humans couldn't ever do that. We can't do it today. Well, that's just false. So anyone that makes <laughs> that particular claim, there isn't much research necessary for that one. Because if you just look at the pyramids, you would tell they're not cleanly cut. And yeah, it's so good. Sorry. But, but okay, okay, if you want to give them benefit of the doubt, then they can just say, oh, but weathering. Okay, sure, that does happen. And then you look at the interior of the pyramids that is far, far, far less subjected to weathering. And you still have tons and tons of imperfections. This is going to come up later, but I love it when the alien proponent takes a piece of paper or a razor blade and fails to slide it between two solid pieces of stone. They're like, look, it doesn't fit. And I'm like, but but that wouldn't work with two bricks laid on top of each other either. Like, they're going to be touching each other. You, you can't fit a solid object in there. And like, this is an example of how precise it is. And then you see the gap. You could stick a pencil in. And you're like, yeah, you Ugh. move it like two inches over and there's the gap and it slides in just easy. <laughs> yeah, it's these examples of everything is so precise. It's, it's so bullshit. Yeah. Ugh, sorry, I'm... But yeah, these are some of the claims that I presume you're going to refute. Well, uh, specifically focusing on what humans could and could not have done. And I, I did start, because I personally found it more interesting, I did start with some explanations that are not super widely accepted uh, about how this could have been done. One of them is definitely more outlandish than the other. But uh, it came up when we were watching Ancient Aliens Debunked, the internal spiral ramp theory. Yeah, was that one of the good ones or is that a bad one? Uh, it was a really good one. Oh, cool. Uh, for the listener, we did find this documentary that was suggested by a Redditor named Ultimate Frog. And he suggested 
Uh, we watched as Ancient Aliens Debunked, which was a pretty good source. They cited most of their sources. We think they could do better there. Uh, and they also did go out on a limb for some weird stuff. It's clear that the guy wanted to be a believer, but when he did his research, he dug in and found not just places where these ancient alien researchers were wrong, but where they systematically lied. Yeah. And that really tears the foundation out of all of this. Anyone pushing ancient aliens falls into two categories, a duped believer or systematic lying profiteer. Pretty much. Yeah. So this guy, he is a, a French researcher. Uh, I know it's the first part. It's Jean-Pierre, but I don't know how to pronounce the last name here. Uh, Houdin? Houdin, maybe. It's like Houdini without the I. Yeah, that, but Houdini was American-Italian. This that is... still found, sounds like a, a little bit too English. I don't know. But yeah. We'll issue a correction next episode. We're going with Houdin. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, his theory is not really mainstream, but of all the non-mainstream theories, it is easily the best. And depending on what additional surveys and information that is gathered on the pyramids may has a real chance at becoming the correct theory. So he's making predictions and they're falsifiable? Yes. Whoa! Amazing! Yeah, the big problem to falsifying his claims, though, is the Egyptian government red tape. He needs to get approval to go on site, and he's not getting it. Why would the Egyptian government ever be worried about European powers coming in and screwing around with the pyramids? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, it's unfortunate. I, I think this is a something that is worthwhile to test, but so, sorry, it I, is what it is. I keep distracting you, but you're saying his, his theories... His... So he believes that a really strong explanation for how they moved the stones in position as they were constructing the pyramid was through a series of internal ramps that we can't see from the outside, hence internal, and they would go to a corner and then they would rotate the stone and then resume sliding it along that ramp. So each ramp was sort of uh, aligned with one of the four outer faces of the pyramid. Yes, at okay. approximately a 7% grade. That's a, a fairly gentle upward slope, which makes sense, considering these are big, heavy stone blocks they're moving. Yes. Uh, so he also theorized that the Grand Gallery, it has no real architectural and near as I can tell, no actual uh, ceremonial purpose inside the pyramid. Is the Grand Gallery just a big room in the pyramid? Yeah, it's a big room that's uh, right next to the King's Chamber. Okay. And, I mean, we now have a modern staircase in the Grand Gallery so people can, like, move around easily in it, but it just seems largely purposeless. And he believes that the reason it's there was to provide a counterweight for another lift opposite of it along the edge of the pyramid. So it has a channel connecting up to the other side where you could have put ropes or something through. Yeah, ropes and, and a lift, and this lift would be used to bring the 60-ton granite blocks that are used for the ceiling of the King's chamber. Oh, I see. So you could carry through this other grand gallery and the uh, tunnel attached to it. You could bring up a bunch of smaller weights, bring them up to the top. No, the, the, the rocks would be brought up from the, uh, the opposite side, the, the edge of the pyramid. The grand gallery is just the location for the counterweight. Well, the, the what I'm trying to say is uh, the counterweight, you have to get the counterweight up to the top. So you'd carry some small rocks up there, put that in some sort of sled or something, slide that down into the grand gallery... Maybe I'm deeply confused. Go ahead and keep going. Maybe it'll make sense to me. Uh, the way that their artist renditions uh, made it appear is it was a, a large wooden contraption that had uh, was attached to ropes on the, the top side of the pyramid that was still under construction. And then there was another sled that was on the edge of the pyramid. And okay. So See? it just made it easier so people with far fewer workers could pull on the, uh, the sled in order to lift it up with the counterweight's help. And the Grand Gallery itself was where the counterweight would slide along. Oh, okay. So that big whole hallway is the Grand Gallery. Yes. 
Ah, that makes sense now. Okay. So then at the top of the grand gallery, you'd start with some weight. You'd throw some rope down into the, the ramp area where you're pulling the things up. You tie these two things together, and presumably you have people pushing on the rock to lift it and pulling or pushing on this big wooden sled thing, maybe putting some weight on it to pull that down, and then moving a big 60-ton granite block up into a pyramid is possible yeah. when you have a counterweight where you're putting like 40 tons on yeah. something you're just you're in eliminating two-thirds of the weight of this giant prohibitive stone okay and then you could bring the counterweight up in pieces or the counterweight could even be the workers couldn't it you could have a bunch of workers on this sled uh, they presume that they used a, a large amount of smaller stones in the counterweight okay that makes sense i follow now yeah so but okay that's that's one way and it's, it's not really falsifiable because we can't really talk to an egyptian and ask them directly okay why is this grand gallery here at least not not without time travel, unfortunately. But the better evidence for his theory is because of the internal ramps, he believes that those internal ramps are largely still there. At certain points of the ramps where they reach the corners, they those were walled off and, and blocked, but the uh, the primary parts of the, the ramps along the edges would still be there. And unfortunately, again, he's not able to go in and actually investigate that. He hasn't gotten permission from the Egyptian government, and he may never, unfortunately. But he did conduct some microgravimetric scans. Correction time. We found another issue when we were doing our editing and fact-checking everything we said. Jean-Pierre Houdin was not the person who performed the gravimetric scans. That was a survey team looking for a secret chamber in 1986. However... The survey team did produce that picture with spirals that looked like internal ramps. But for the rest of this discussion, whenever we say he did it, that survey team did it. And I actually had to look this up on Wikipedia to understand what exactly this means. Is this the thing where you test how strong gravity is right beneath your feet? Uh, it's not necessarily directly beneath your feet, but yeah, you're testing these small changes in gravity in an area. So he held this tool that does this measurement over different parts of the pyramid to see how thick the pyramid was based on how much its gravity changed? Something along those lines. I don't know if he wow. was actually on foot. I don't know the okay. specific instrument he used, but... He did create a map of the changes in gravity over the area of the pyramid, and the scan did show areas of less mass that coincide almost perfectly with where he predicts internal ramps are. So these ramps would have hollow areas because you don't want to be building you know, pyramid walls on a seven degree grade. Yeah. So you could detect this by an absence of gravity corresponding to the shape of the ramp. Yeah. So that implies that there's hollow... Empty spaces along the stretches of these internal ramps in the pyramid that have been walled off. Are these uh, gravimetric scans precise enough that we get a picture or an image out of it? Uh, yes. And one of my sources, the YouTube source, actually shows you the image that they produced from the scan. Well, that's amazing. Let me go take a look at that and we'll... Yeah. Oh, here we go. They've got a whole bunch of computer shit going on at 44 minutes in. There we go. They're building up a 3D model of it. You know what this looks like? This looks really fucking boring. <laughs> yeah, these fuckers don't talk about aliens. They're not flashing bright lights at us. They have computer models of, like, stone blocks. It's like they're seriously busting out, like, some, like, CAD-looking Fusion 360 software, where it's like, and this is how much weight's on this corner of the stone block. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, look at that. Yeah. I could easily see how that could be anomalies from 
the scanning process, whatever that looks like, or I could see how that is an accurate representation of what's going on internally. And you've already vetted this source? Yeah. And I trust you, so if you say that's likely to be a ramp, I'll trust you there. Well, uh, okay, I'm not going to go so far as to say it's likely to be a ramp. Like you said, it could be anomalies. But this is, in my opinion, actionable evidence. I would agree. It's not proof, but it's evidence. Yeah, uh, yeah. actionable at that. Like, the, I don't... Like, you could do something based on this. You yeah. could go digging for ramps and make... Even if the Egyptian government doesn't want specifically him to go in onto the site, having some team that knows what they're looking for to go in there and investigate this lead is, in my opinion, worthwhile. He could send along equipment or instructions and say, hey, do X, Y, and Z, and we'll learn something. Yeah. All of these things, the the counterweight system, the internal ramp, and moving stones along these kinds of grades, uh, these are readily doable for the Egyptians at the time. And this is... So for a lot of other pyramids, quickly covering the the mainstream understanding, is that a lot of these pyramids are constructed simply using ramps, like exterior ramps that are just built to the height that is necessary to build up a pyramid as, as high as it needs to go. And the reason that this is believed is because there is very strong evidence other pyramids are built this way. But the Great Pyramid, pyramid that was made for Khufu, is much, much larger. And like I even saw a comment from one person who was like, yeah, be very dubious of any theory that tries to explain just the Great Pyramid and not any of the others. And I'm here thinking, well, hold on. When you're talking about construction at different scales, you're often going to be confronted with different problems. So they're going to need different solutions. I mean, certain things are still going to be there. Like we have every reason to believe they're still using sleds. Yeah, carving Mount Rushmore is different than carving something in your high school art class. Yeah. So the, the same principles might be at work where you're you're carving but different tools are going to be used at different scale so if you're making a pyramid that has say like a, a 30 degree uh inclination and it only goes up maybe 100 feet you're not exactly going to need a whole lot of ramp material that's still a big ass structure though i mean 100 yeah. feet tall is yeah, it's like a 10-story building, but a 30-degree ramp, yeah, you're right. You could just cover it in dirt and then pull your stuff up to the top. The Great Pyramid, uh, I don't know exactly what the, the slope is. I, I want to say it's close, closer to 45, and it is like 140 meters. So in freedom units, that's like... That's like 450 feet? Something like that. Yeah, okay. It is absolutely gigantic. And people have estimated if they the Egyptians were to actually make a normal ramp, like constructing these other smaller pyramids, they would actually require more material than the what would took for the pyramid to be made in the first place. So we can't just blindly apply the ramps, the normal ramp theory, to the Great Pyramid. And that's where these conspiracy theories come from and these alternative theories come from, is attempting to explain a few missing details for engineering at this scale. Give me just a second. Yep. Okay, I just went ahead and pulled up some numbers on height because I was still, like, stymied because you're still talking about scale and, like, the different construction methods. The According to Wikipedia, the Great Pyramid is 481 feet tall or 146 meters. Yep. Okay. We're sitting in Omaha right now. Not a big city. There's, like, a million people who live here, so we're not, like, a small rural town either. And we have a few skyscrapers. The two tallest in town are one First National Center which is a 45-story building and comes in at 634 feet, a couple hundred feet taller than the pyramid. But the second tallest building is Woodman Tower. I actually worked in Woodman Tower for a little while because I worked for Woodman of America. It's 30 floors and it's 478 feet tall. And you can see it from anywhere in town. You can be literally five miles away, look at the correct place on the horizon and see the word Woodman at the top of it. Yep. So the Great Pyramid is three feet taller than Woodman Tower 
and we're saying, no, no, we're going to use the same construction process on that, using the smaller t- the smaller pyramid that might be the size of my house. Clearly something different is going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. That is just expected. And yeah, when I saw that comment from the that other person, I was just like, yeah, no, you... Different scales require different solutions. You are not acknowledging that, so okay, just go away. Okay, I'm gonna add these two Wikipedia entries to our sources. Omaha skyscrapers with scare quotes. Okay, sorry for all that noise. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the next theory is one that is it's largely dismissed. And the only reason I bring it up is because specifically the claim humans couldn't have done it. This theory is something that I do not think the Egyptians did do. There is a huge amount of complexity involved in it, but technically the technology was available in ancient Egyptian times to make it happen. It is technically possible. So that just that mandatory disclaimer out of the way. It's possible, but outrageously unlikely because of how complicated it is. There's another guy named Chris Macy. Massey? Macy? Massey. I don't know. That's weird. Let's go with Maasai. Sure. We're going to get corrections. Let's go hard. Okay. <laughs> hate this plan, but it is what it is. Okay, so he believes that the ancient Egyptians constructed the pyramid using water. Water exists. That's plausible so far. (laughs) (laughs) I can see the question mark. So this was a theory that was popularized a few years ago and made a couple of small-ish rounds in news and then kind of went away entirely. And he's putting forth the idea that they would carve out these stones. They would leave them in the quarry. They would create a channel from the quarry to the Nile. And they would create uh, air-filled animal skins, seal them up. They would attach them to the blocks, wait for the Nile to flood, which would lift these blocks off of the ground in the water. And then they would huge trains of these blocks, uh, like attached to beasts of burden, they would guide them down along the bank over to the Great Pyramid, or at least to a another channel. And the, uh, the Grand Causeway, I think is what it's called, that goes up to the Great Pyramid. He postulates that this was originally used for uh, just a, a channel of water to move these blocks after removing it from the the quarry up the river to this uh, causeway to the pyramid and then there was a <laughs> kind of like with uh, with channel locks there would be uh, wooden blocks for controlling water flow and a water chute going up the side of the pyramid and they would just carefully place these blocks into these locks and then let buoyancy lift the blocks up to the top of the pyramid it sounds easier to signal aliens <laughs> i mean i get what you're saying with the physics of all this you, there's a big wooden structure that's on the side of this thing but you're talking about a wooden structure that'll have to be watertight for 400 fucking feet high in the air 140 meters that's a uh, slight correction the the door lock would be wooden but the the main chute itself would be stone Oh, so it's like a channel built in the side of the pyramid. Yeah. Is there any physical evidence to support that? No. Okay, so it doesn't violate physics, but there's not a lot of evidence for it. Correct. Okay. You did caveat and say that that was how it worked the whole time. And even then, that that might be partially correct. Maybe they attached animal skins and wooden rafts to these things at the quarry, waited for the Nile to flood, moved them in closer, and then moved it up on internal ramps. We do know that they did move some stones by boat along the Nile. We do have pictures of that, don't we? Or pictograms, where they've drawn it in hieroglyphics. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, So we know that that is a thing they did do, but engineering complicated locks that move up the largest structure of the ancient world, (laughs) that's something else entirely. Well, again, it was the largest thing at the time. No matter how they did it, it was going to be impressive. Yeah. They do have a video 
that and I do got a couple of other things that talks about this. They do have a video where they try to explain the the step by step process of constructing a pyramid using this technique, and that was pretty informative. And towards the tail end of the video, they briefly cover high level details for things they consider evidence for this theory. I don't remember all of them. I do remember that they claimed that there was uh, what appeared to be flood damage near the the bottom of the pyramid, and this would support the idea. But like that also could be flooding. Yeah, 4,000 years, there's probably going to be some flooding. You're going to experience water damage. But also, I tried to look up other things to corroborate that claim, and I couldn't readily find any. Corroborate the flood claim or corroborate their using water this way? No, 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 that there was flood damage there. I see. Yeah, because I wanted to get some other context, because they were clearly presenting it through their own lens. And if there was flood damage, I wanted to see that through a more neutral lens, if it were true. And I couldn't find that. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so I did also find a research paper where they absolutely did confirm a canal extension that connected the Aswan Quarry to the Nile. So that's neat. They were doing something with water and their quarry. It was The simple explanation is just what was depicted in the hieroglyphs where there's moving stone on a boat. But I don't know, it's, it's something that vaguely supports this theory. So this still all comes back to the central idea of these people weren't dumb. They just didn't have the benefit of all of, it, all of the technology and all of the engineering we already have. Yeah, they, they were quite smart. They devised clever means of moving rocks. We know they floated rocks down rivers using technology. Yeah. Not that boats and animal skins are super high-tech, but it's high-tech enough to move a big chunk of rock. And then they custom-built some system, likely some sort of ramps with counterweights and whatnot, to get these rocks up onto the pyramid. Especially considering that they managed to do all these things when the strongest metal they had available to them was copper. That's pretty good. It was pretty impressive. They were limited by materials, mostly. Like, they, they did really well for what they had. And if they had more, they would have done more. I mean, it's again, like you said, it's not that they were stupid. All right, so these other sources you have, though, uh, let's just hit those URLs real quick. Yep. Oh, they're, okay, so the one other source that does talk about the, the more traditional, uh, the, the mainstream belief of how these things were constructed, uh, sorry, the pyramids were constructed, we did find a ramp that was had some really interesting construction. Uh, it was at the stone quarry, Hatnub, Hatnub, I don't know, smooth ramp flanked by staircases and post holes. So things you could stick like a wooden beam into and then... And then wrap some rope around it and then have people on the stairs pull up a sled. That's pretty That's pretty clever. Give people a good uh, high traction surface to work with, like stairs. Yeah. Pull rocks up a smooth thing. Okay. And they, they say using this, they could handle slopes of 20%. That's a very aggressive slope. That's rough. I don't like doing that on my bike. Yeah. And then even better, the tools that were recovered from this site where this ramp was located had the inscription of Khufu. So we do believe that this ramp was existed and was used at the same time of the great period great pyramids construction so again a bunch of corroborating evidence not hard proof but the body of evidence is painting a picture yeah okay but this was at a quarry so this was a tech that was used to take stone out of the quarry but it could have been applied in other places probably not to the scale of putting stones on top of the great pyramid that's just again the, the amount of material required is more than the pyramid itself to create that ramp but uh, this is 
is a tech that could be used in conjunction with other things to help bridge that gap. Okay. So it seems like the big mystery is, because we have confirmed some things, they definitely used the, these ramps to get the stones out of the quarry or up this one incline. They definitely used water to float some of the rocks out. We know how they did some of this. The big mystery is still, how did they get the rocks up on top of the pyramid? <laughs> and we have ideas for that, but no confirmed definitive stuff. Based on my research, the strongest theory, I think, is the internal ramp hypothesis. Seems good. So some of your citations here, the ramp contraption you got from, you got a, uh, you have a link to live science or uh, some of the more conventional methods. Uh, you have a, you link to the BBC and they have an article about the Great Pyramids. You've got a link to a paper at Academia at EDU, uh, engineeringsociety.com describing Chris Massey's theory about the channel locks. Yep, and a YouTube video describing it as well. Okay, for there's the that. We'll approachable make sure. way. You also have a Wikipedia link to microgravimetric scans and the BBC's description of John Pierre Howden's... Uh, <laughs> can't say it with a straight face okay with john pierre houdin's non-mainstream internal ramp theory okay that's a bunch of good sources for this yeah when point black a point blank asked if he'd been vaccinated what what did i say point black yeah it's, it's what happens when you leave the n out of point blank what okay i accidentally set a color oops get a box of crayola like right now i could get one so the next broad claim that I started researching right after that is the notion that the stones for the Great Pyramids were cut with lasers. Which is obviously true. Fuck off. <laughs> uh, so, no, we we pretty much know that they were quarried. The, so there is kind of a, a smoking gun, so to speak, for this particular claim. Uh, rather, that we know that these stones were quarried out of the ground. I mean, we have spots where they were carved out of the ground and probably some that are halfway carved right uh pretty much <laughs> we have we have an obelisk uh it is it's pretty popular an obelisk that is still attached to the ground and you know, we'll even show you this image right here but it's busted yeah, so we believe that it was abandoned because of this fracture. It just, the fracture occurred at some point while it was still being quarried, and they're like, well, we can't use this obelisk anymore. So we'll be sure to link to this. There's a yeah. Wikipedia picture, right? But imagine it looks like a dick, and the tip has been broken. A broken dick. It looks like a broken dick. It, I would not describe it that way. I do not understand why you, uh... A am I wrong? A little bit? And it's big, <laughs> but it clearly has a tip. Okay, moving on. We're just, we're, we're moving the fuck on. <laughs> so this is, what is it actually called? I remember this. This this does have a real name. Yes, it does. Is it the Aswan Obelisk? That sounds correct. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get corrections on our pronunciation there too. So why don't we call it Aswan? Oh, it just the Wikipedia article is Unfinished Obelisk. Okay. Yep, and that's in the Aswan Quarry. Okay, so that is pretty much a smoking gun for how old this works. They clearly were carving out the stone around the obelisk, and they were going to start carving out the stone underneath it as well until it was detached, and then they would smooth it out. And we're very confident that this is just how they got the stone out of the ground. Exactly how they removed the stone. Okay, there's a bit less agreement there. There is the belief that it was just struck repeatedly by many, many workers uh, with other stones until they just, they chipped the stone off gradually until they got it into the shape they wanted. And if you look at the picture again of the obelisk itself, it definitely seems to have some marks that make you think that that is possible. That, you, that they were those, striking it repeatedly? Yeah, these indentations that they have. Yeah, it definitely looks like it's 
that's been worked or I don't want to say machined, but if I saw that today, I'd presume it was some sort of automatic pounding type situation. Looks like that happened. Maybe like jackhammered or something. Yeah. But I could just imagine, I could also imagine replacing that effect with a team of a dozen slaves pounding away at it. Yeah. Copper wouldn't do so great here, uh, but uh, there are other things that they they did manage to work into the workflow using copper. So we know, we have a very good idea that just, that is how that works. And for making finer cuts, skipping down to bottom my sources here, uh, for making finer cuts, we do have very high confidence in that they also used uh, slabbing saws. They just had a very, this was covered in the Ancient Aliens Debunked. This uh, is those copper tools they were talking about? Yeah, and they would drop grains uh, into the cut, and then they would just run the saw back and forth and let the grains themselves do the cutting. Yeah, so for the listener, just imagine a, a flat piece of metal. Any metal works. It doesn't matter what the metal is. You'd probably even get away with plastic if you really wanted to. Mm-hmm. But you'd rub it over a surface, and you'd put some sort of abrasive between your saw, your piece of material, whatever it is that you're pulling back and forth, and your workpiece, the, the stone you're cutting, and you just pull and push the sand back and forth, and because sand has little particles of quartz, which is very hard and very durable in it, you wind up abrading away a portion of the material you're working, which is why you could use probably even a wooden beam or something. But I imagine you'd use copper because it holds up better, and when yep. the copper breaks off, the little bits of copper can help cut too. So you're you're rubbing this... Uh, the, this flat copper thing edge on on the piece of wood and you keep adding more of the this this fine sand and your fine sand is cutting away and I imagine that would leave you with a really smooth cut after a while. Yep. Yeah, because anytime I want to smooth something out, I use sandpaper. <laughs> Yeah. So it was pretty apparent early on in my research that this was just how it worked, not lasers. But I kind of wanted to, I was going to say channel my inner Mythbuster. I don't have access to lasers yet. But We're working on it. You're working on it. We are working. Like, no joke. We are working on it. Uh, but I don't want to actually test lasers, but I did want to do research and like, okay, well, if it were a laser, could we falsify that? And the answer is kind of yes. So I did quickly look up the materials used in the Great Pyramid. It is by and large limestone uh, 5.5 million tons of limestone 8,000 tons of granite and half a million tons of mortar 500 million tons of limestone 5.5 million tons oh okay 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 sorry sorry 5.5 million tons of limestone 8,000 tons of granite and how many tons of half a million half a million tons of lime uh, of, of mortar. mortar was used in the construction of the great pyramid yes that's a fuckload that's like six million tons of stuff plus some granite <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Good job. Oh, just you give me round numbers. <laughs> it's like, why are we measuring the granite? The granite is a rounding error here. Yes, and that granite was, uh, as far as I'm aware, used almost exclusively on the king chamber. Is that that one room that they put that as a support members across the top? Yes. Okay. That they needed, according to Jean-Pierre Houdin. So they have some structural granite, but the rest of it's limestone and mortar. The sweeping majority of it is yeah. mortar and limestone. Yeah, lasers wouldn't even be a good tool for cutting this. People who are saying lasers are just speaking out of ignorance. Hold on. Oh. Hold oh. on. Oh. <laughs> so I did manage to find a research paper from 2004 that was investigating industrial uses for laser stone cutting, and they specifically tested it on marble and limestone. What happened? Uh, they successfully cut the stone. How'd the cuts look? Did they look good or did they look like ass? Uh, the short answer is they looked melty. <laughs> That's just what I want out of my new marble <laughs> countertops. That good melty look. 
Okay, so yeah, I wrote down some notes from this because uh, I actually read the uh, research paper in full. It's a pretty short one, a good easy read. What's the URL for that one? Uh, this is the sitecrx.ist.psu.edu. So sightseer, they're just rehosting another paper. Okay, sure. Uh, so I did write down for the laser nerds out there, this is a CO2 laser. It had a maximum output power of 2.5 kilowatts and a wavelength of 10.6 micrometers. That's a pretty big one. If you're going to buy one of those machines from China, you can buy a, a 40 watt laser for like 800 bucks and if you start dropping real money you can get like a kilowatt laser for like 10 grand they did say this was for industrial purposes i quoted a particular section of this laser cutting involves a thermal process that consists of rapid and localized heating of the stone with the formation of a blue colored plasma at energy densities of about 10 to the seventh watts per square centimeter in a melt shearing process so for perspective watts Okay, 10 to the 7th watts, that's uh, 10 million watts? 60 watt light bulbs, that's a typical incandescent light bulb to like light up one room. If I'm doing my math right, that's like 160 or 170,000 60 watt light bulbs, but you're cramming all that down into the size of one fingernail? Yeah, uh, that would obviously melt stone. So that might seem super obvious to you, me, and most of the listeners, quite honestly, but I wanted to specifically quote this section because it establishes that heat being applied to the stone, causing it to melt and then to... uh separate to cut i was gonna say like kind of to aerosolize but yeah it just it goes through changes of the, the, the state of matter in order to remove it and separate the stone into two separate pieces so like you're saying if you laser cut some rock you don't want to breathe that probably not no definitely not okay okay ruined my weekend plans so there is heat related damage along the cut edges of the stone go figure <laughs> we cut the stone with heat it, it got warm oops Okay, yeah. That would leave evidence. It would, like, as you say, look melty. There might be stress fractures from heating and cooling. So a lot of the the melty appearance, we could once again go back to, well, it's been around 4,000 years. It's weathered. How weathered does something get in the Sahara Desert? I mean, there's wind and there's sand. I guess, but I mean, you're going to get rid of all the melty evidence all over the thing? It's it's preposterous. Not all. And certainly less so, much less so in the interior. Oh, yeah. There's not sandstorms on the inside of the pyramids. No. Uh, So, okay, going more on to the study, it found that molten,izing marble and limestone created an abundance of calcium oxide along the cut surfaces due to thermal decomposition of calcium carbonate. So chemical traces. Yes. Did we find those on the pyramids? Not that I was able to find at all. Okay. So yeah, with a, we've actually done stone cutting with a laser for industrial purposes. Granted, it was a CO2 laser. Maybe that matters. Maybe it doesn't. Probably not. But it left behind calcium oxide. And we would see that in abundance in the Great Pyramid if it was laser cut. And near as I can tell, we do not. What about the granite rocks? Do you have... I I was unable to find anything for industrial cutting of granite with lasers. Oh, so it's just impractical. If if it works, somebody would be doing it somewhere. Okay. I I guess that's one interpretation. I I don't want to make too many claims there, but uh, yeah, I looked. I couldn't find anything about laser cutting granite. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And even then, I presume if we did, there'd be chemical... Oh, yeah. Evidence. Absolutely. It's the same basic idea. You're yeah. applying a shitload of heat that's going to cause some kind of chemical change at the cut site, and that's going to leave something behind. So on that fuckload of heat, mm-hmm. 10 million watts? 
10 to the 7th. 10 million. Yeah. That sounds incredibly high, but I guess that's per square centimeter. Yeah. So they wouldn't have to be hitting the whole area. I know they have laser cutters that are like 10 watts or 2.5 watts, and those can engrave metal and carve wood. Mm -hmm. But I guess they're just doing it over a tiny, tiny area. So they didn't go into a whole lot of detail as to like the exact size of the cut. So they may be fiddling with the numbers. The laser might be smaller than a square centimeter. I don't know. I I didn't really get that kind of information from the paper. But uh, yeah, per square centimeter, 10 million watts is what they said. So if they do bring it down to like one square millimeter, they could do that with like a hundred watt laser because it would be, you know, if you get a hundred watts. Maybe not a hundred. That still sounds a little low, but yeah, yeah, lower. Yeah, yeah you're right. You're right. But but, but, but some fathomable amount, right? Because just a hundred thousand yeah. watts is like a bunch of houses, yeah. but a hundred thousand watts per square centimeter, but only for one square millimeter, that's totally doable. Yeah. If they are doing it over such a tiny area, they could also be like adjusting the focal distance of the laser. So maybe they're taking multiple passes. Yeah. They did describe that it takes a little bit of time for the cut to occur. They, I didn't read anything about passes. They were just like, yeah, it happens over a period. It's not like a lightsaber or <laughs> anything that just does a, an obnoxiously clean cut and just one pass like you see in some sci-fi movies or anything like that no they have to hit it with a laser they keep it there for the cut to complete and they move very slowly yeah so maybe your lasers just aren't as good as alien lasers well we don't have an exact idea for how long the aliens took according to these allegations (laughs) the paper did describe it as like not being an instant cut or anything like it it took time to cut through the stone stupid lazy lasers okay so but on this topic of cutting stones with lasers i did find something else this is just an honorable mention it's weird it was almost certainly not the result of a laser at least that's not the dominant theory uh but there is a stone in saudi arabia the al nasla look at that picture it's a very clean cut yeah it's it's very understandable to look at that and be like shit that ain't natural But even then, that's a thing you could do with that sawing method we discussed earlier. If (laughs) ancient pranksters were committed, that's a huge stone. Yeah, that that dude next to it looks tiny. Yeah. It's seriously like four times the, the height of that dude. But you could cut that stone with a copper saw and a bunch of sand and you could looking around it's Saudi Arabia. They do appear to have an abundance of sand. Indeed. So uh, periodic rain and uh, sand blasting from just weather conditions there is the primary theory for how that cut was made, but we don't actually know. It could be artificial or it could be natural. Yeah. But, but it was almost certainly not lasers. That that seems reasonable. It, it, it would look more melty. Yes, yes, it would. <laughs> so so to, to wrap that up, it, no, lasers did not cut the stones. It would leave behind evidence. We don't have that evidence. Is that all of our sources? Was there anything else you wanted to dig into? <sighs> There's so much more. Now, that's it for cutting stones with lasers. So uh, the other sources were oocities.org. It looks like they're discussing some of the uh, saws. The Wikipedia page for Al Nasta, that clean cut stone. Sightseer has the main paper discussing the laser cutting of marble and uh, limestone. And then uh, Wikipedia you used for the materials of the Great Pyramid. And another Wikipedia link for the Broken Obelisk where they have the nice pictures that anyone can look at. Yep. Okay, fantastic. I get my giant megaliths at Costco. They're big enough, they come in one packs. Oh. What? It fits on the cart right next to the 12-pack of grand pianos. What fucking cart are you using? The ones Costco gives you. They're Costco-sized. <laughs> just put a 12-pack of carts in your cart and just to cart off your monoliths. What's the next thing you wanted to discuss? The Baghdad battery. Oh, you teased this earlier. Yes. Okay, so how many light bulbs can it power? All of them? None of them. Could it power the lasers they used to cut the things you just denied in the previous... No? 
How many spaceships can it make fly? None. How long to charge a Tesla? It can't. Oh. <laughs> okay. So uh, the the quick and dirty for the Baghdad battery is that the the claim is just false. Like there's literally nothing to support the claim. It, it wasn't a battery at all. No. Damn. I was on the side of uh, this was likely a battery, but okay. Uh, not near as we can tell, though. Uh, it had some pieces that were missing to make it an actual battery. It was very close in construction to a battery, which I get, I get why people jump there. Okay. So under alternative hypotheses on the Wikipedia article for Baghdad Battery, uh, Professor Elizabeth Stone of Stony Brook University. How incredibly appropriate. She is an expert in Iraqi archaeology, and in an interview that she had after returning from an archaeological expedition, she stated that she doesn't know a single archaeologist that actually believes that these were batteries in any form. Duh. Okay. So it's just not accepted within the scientific community that these were batteries, not even for electroplating. Even though they technically could have been used for electroplating, there's nothing else to support the claim. This doesn't really occur, like we haven't really recovered any other batteries like this. Even the current Baghdad battery is currently missing. Uh-oh. <laughs> People uh, looted the museum and and the Baghdad battery is one of the things that was looted and it has not been returned. During the uh, Iraq war? Yeah. Oh, oh goodness. Okay. So we got rid of Saddam, but we also got rid of his phone charger from the ancient world. Uh, this was back in like 2003, I think. Yeah, because of the post 9-11 wars. So the museum was looted. Baghdad battery was among, among the things that was looted. It has not been returned. We don't know where the Baghdad battery is right now. Probably some rich asshole's personal collection. Almost certainly, yes. That's, um, well, that's better than destroyed. Uh, so the battery... Like I said, it was missing a few components to make it an actual battery. Uh, there's no artifacts that have been electroplated nearby the battery. There's no other real batteries that we've found that are like it. So there's not really anything other than it is 90% of the way to being an actual battery in construction to suggest that it was a battery. If left to their own devices at this tech level, they might have eventually discovered electroplating, but... No, no physical evidence they did. Yeah, pretty much. So people did try to test the battery hypothesis. They're like, okay, well, maybe the, the parts that are missing to make it a battery, they were just lost to the sands of time, so to speak. And maybe it really was a battery. What could it do? So people would put a some acidic liquid in there, usually some kind of juice, like uh, one researcher in particular tried grape juice. Grape juice is a common uh, medium for... Uh homebrew like craft batteries yeah lemon juice wine yeah vinegar was... these are all choices that get used uh, mythbusters also tested this and they used lemon juice that makes sense uh, but when uh arn Egebrock, i'm sorry so on the theory that we have to issue corrections arnie Egebrecht. Yeah, I think I think you were close. Egg Eggebrecht? Yeah, I I apologize. I'm gonna move on. I but I own it. I'm fucking it up. Sure. Tell us about Arnie. They they tested the battery hypothesis using grape juice, and the result they produced was half a volt. Is that enough to electroplate? Kind of. Because if you're only doing things like the Pharaoh's scepter, you don't need scale, right? If the Pharaoh can have a solid gold scepter, because no one knows what electroplating is, you could throw yeah. you know, a scepter in a in a solution and let it sit for a month if you need to. You could technically make that work. Huh. Interesting. Uh, I mean, it has a few other problems. We got a bunch of grape juice. But anyway, Mythbusters also tested this. Uh, they created terracotta jars. They filled it with lemon juice and they connected them in series. Uh, so they had 10 of these connected to one another and they were able to produce a whopping four volts. This was their arc episode where they wind up hooking up a car battery in one of these and shocking one of their buddies, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, that was, that was a fun episode. Yes. 
So these things couldn't really produce a whole lot of power. And there isn't even a really strong evidence that it was used for electroplating. There's a bunch of other theories for what the Baghdad battery was used for. None of them really have mainstream acceptance. The short answer is we don't really know what it was for. There just isn't enough evidence to lean towards one thing over another. But Well, I mean, we did find a jar, uh, a clay jar with acidic remnants on the inside. Is it so preposterous it was a jar full of wine? Well, okay. There was more than just the acidic remnants in it. There was the, the, the copper rod and the other uh, case. A drinking straw? Solid copper rod. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know. If we're still just sticking with mundane stuff, there's tons of modern mixed drinks that use copper as a as a catalyst to encourage some other reaction to happen, like a Moscow mule. You, you prepare sure. that in copper mugs because it, it, it modifies the flavor on its way through. That is possible, yes. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a million mundane explanations before we elevate this to aliens gave us battery tech. Yeah. Even if we take these fanciful explanations of electroplating, that's still miles away from aliens gave us battery tech. Yeah, and it's really shitty battery. Like, why would they give us this, of all things, if they were giving us batteries? Locally sourced and sustainable, thank you. This, What's the carbon footprint of this battery? But one wine orchard? That's nothing for alien tech. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> so... This wasn't really enough power to do anything meaningful with. Like, you're not going to illuminate an entire pyramid. You're not even really going to illuminate a single light bulb. That's even assuming you could construct a light bulb. Well, are you going to go on to the evidence for torches? No, I didn't oh. bother touching that. Yeah, because just focusing on the Baghdad battery itself. Okay. And, like, even if you did have, like, run copper through the pyramids in order to put up a bunch of light bulbs, like, okay, where's the light bulbs? But then you get into talking about, like, infrastructure for these wires. You don't want them to be just plain exposed if they have enough power they can power a light bulb but then they have enough power to potentially harm somebody you need those ideally tucked away and there's none of that infrastructure near as we can tell in any of the pyramids so it just it doesn't really work and then there's just the range the baghdad battery when producing power is producing a direct current anybody that knows a little bit more than the baseline about electricity knows that direct current doesn't go far so the Great Pyramid is a very large structure. You're, at these volts, you're not going to be pushing that power very far. So I'm curious about the actual drop-off there. I think the Great Pyramid might be at the limit of what we can do with modern DC, but even then, you're not talking about modern DC. You're talking no. about a battery that's defeated by a bank of lemons with nickel and copper nails stuck in them. This yep. is these are these are some feeble ass batteries if they're batteries. Which we have again no real evidence to say they are. It might just be mixed drinks for all we freaking know. Yep. Okay. Could be. So ancient people getting hammered that that seems really plausible. Uh, the main source for that, you've got Wikipedia, but you also mentioned this other paper, this other thing? Uh, well, they're all things that are mentioned in the Wikipedia. Oh, so the sources of the Wikipedia article? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, your head's been back with the ancient pyramids, so long all these new events just melt together. Yeah. You gotta stop using lasers on these ideas, man. I know. So that discussion of the Baghdad battery was pure gold. Oh my god. I see what you did there. Just like this segue. Uh-huh. Okay. So you want to tell us about gold? Yes. The claim that Anunnaki was interested in our gold. Which, if any of you have not seen the movie Cowboys and Aliens, it's actually kind of good. Give it a watch. Yeah, it, 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 I'm not going to say it was good, but it was... I don't know, I didn't want the 90 minutes back. It was enjoyable. Yeah. It was silly fun. Yeah, the aliens came for our gold and they melted it out of the ground and then cowboys shot them with guns because there's gold in them and our hills were taking it. Yeah, stop taking our gold. <laughs> so ridiculous. <laughs> 
we're using that. But it's like the same plot holes that apply to that movie apply to real life. There's so much golden meteorites and shit in space that you have to pass to get to Earth. Yes. And that, specifically that, is what I dove really, really deep into. Okay. So unless the aliens came from Mercury or Venus, they had to pass by the, the meteor belt, right? The asteroid belt? Asteroid belt, yes. The asteroid, yeah. The thing between Mars and Jupiter. Mm-hmm. And it's a big ass circle, kind of even spherical in, in some ways. They have to go through that to get here. And you're going to tell us all about the gold there? Uh, roughly, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the problems with trying to extract gold from Earth, when you're looking at it from the perspective of a species that is not local to Earth, that is. Well, you got to deal with cowboys. They could shoot you. Technically, I did cover that. Um, <laughs> what? No, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> Hear me out. Hear me out. <laughs> It's not as crazy as it sounds. I trust me. No, the so I wrote down uh, problems with this. Like we are a, a heavy gravity well. I mean, not as. Did heavy. you just call me fat? Yes. <sighs> We're not as heavy as Jupiter, of course, but it's still a significant gravity well. Like it takes a lot of energy in order to escape. Yeah, I mean, look at those rockets, like from the SpaceX or from the Apollo missions or the the Russian Soyuz rockets. Yeah, that little capsule on top. That's not that's not how big they wanted the spaceships to be. 90% of that thing is fuel because it takes a lot of fuel to lift your fuel and to lift the little spaceship at the top because there's so much fucking gravity. Yep. Yeah. And you're talking about hauling presumably industrial amounts of one of the heaviest elements out of this gravity well? Well, yeah, that that's ridiculous. But if you're a conspiracy theorist, you can wave that away by saying, ah, super science, they used anti-gravity, the same stuff they used to lift those stones that they cut with lasers. Sure, sure. Like, well, okay, you're not <laughs> wrong. You can hand wave away just about anything. But this is still relevant when you're comparing it to alternative options, which we'll get to in a moment. But just understand that is a problem, potentially. And then you have weathering conditions on Earth. Like, maybe you have to worry about lightning strikes. That's something that happens on Earth. Not a lot of lightning in space. Nope. Regardless of what Star Trek would have you think. (laughs) Oh, Star Trek. We love it. Not a lot of rain either. Yeah. Maybe getting water into certain parts of your ship is a bad thing. Uh, Maybe high winds are disruptive. Maybe, I don't don't know. Maybe you're the aliens from Signs and you melt in water. Uh, Don't ever bring up that movie again. Sorry. Okay. And then, on top of all of that, you have potentially hostile indigenous life that you may have to interact with. Well, that's why they didn't mine gold in Australia. They didn't have to contend with drop bears. So none of these things <laughs> are in the asteroid belt. None of them. Yeah, just drop bears is a good enough reason to stay in the asteroid belt. I, uh, I follow. God damn it. So, sure, you maybe you do have tech where you hand wave away, like, the gravity well. But, like, even if you have that tech, it's still going to be easier to just go to the asteroid belt. So then the question becomes, all right, what? how much gold is there in the asteroid belt? TLDR, a shit ton. How much gold is there on Earth? A shit ton, but not as much. Wow, okay. <laughs> That's pretty much what I expected as answers, but okay. Yeah, so uh, I started out by trying to establish how much gold is in the asteroid belt, simply asking that question plainly, and I didn't come up with very many answers because, unfortunately, we don't have a concrete answer for that. We can't. We haven't surveyed every rock in the asteroid belt. Yeah, but we can get an estimate, like maybe a yes. range or something, yeah. Absolutely, and I did actually gather all the resources and did the math myself for this shit. Awesome. <laughs> so I started with... With a study on gold in meteorites and the Earth's crust, I ignored the Earth's crust part, just focusing on gold in meteorites. Okay, so this is uh, published by the USGS, United States Geological Survey. Yes. Okay, that's a good source. Yes. So the gold content in meteorites range from 
uh, 0.0003 parts per million to 8.74 parts per million. Do we have a point of comparison for that with gold here on Earth? Like how much gold is there in a modern gold mine? Uh, I did not look that up. Okay, I'll pull that up real quick. Sure. Okay, so a little bit of quick Googling and some question and answers on the internet. There are some people who believe it's profitable to strip mine gold as long as there's a one gram of gold per 3.6 million grams mined. As long as there's a third of a part per million, so yeah, 0. 0.3 parts per million, it's profitable. So in this scale you have from 0. 0.0003, that's clearly below that range, yeah. but up to 8.74. It's clearly way above it. Yeah, that's, so if you pick and choose your rocks, you can find rocks that are heavy in gold and profitably mine gold at Earth standards. Don't know what alien standards are, but... Mm -hmm. If you're looking for easy gold, those super gold-dense rocks are way better than what we've got. Okay. So the next step I, I took was to establish what the mass of the asteroid belt is. Okay. This is difficult, as you may presume, because uh, it's kind of big and scattered over a very large area. So we're still in estimating territory. But I found two different sources that took two different approaches to trying to answer that question. And they did come up with some slightly different numbers, but they're not wildly off. Uh, the first one that I looked up, they used known diameters for the largest objects, and then they estimated average densities to create an estimate for the total mass of the asteroid belt. And the result they came to was... I did a whole lot of math here. Uh, it is... 12.25 plus or minus 0.19 times 10 to the negative 10th solar masses. So the Earth is like a tenth of a percent of a solar mass or something on that order. So what we're saying here is this thing is like a millionth or 12 millionths of a solar mass or something. So I converted it to Earth masses right here. Oh, look at that. And then I converted again to kilograms. Okay, so you've got a range of about 2.4 followed by moving the decimal point 20 places over. Yeah. So two followed by uh, 20 zeros kilograms is in the asteroid belt. So that's a big number. That's the total mass of the asteroid belt, yes. But it's a fraction of Earth's mass. So using these yep. other numbers, we're looking at like 0.004% uh, the mass of Earth. Well, it, so it's tiny compared to the mass of Earth. Yes, that's on the lower end. And actually, no, yeah, it's not meaningfully different, but still 0.004%. That is one estimation. I found another paper. Regrettably, the paper was behind a paywall. Fortunately, the information I needed was in the abstract, which is not behind the paywall. Okay. So, <laughs> so this second group, uh, okay, the first estimate was from 2014. This one is from 2018, a bit more recent. And they used uh, gravitational attraction to estimate estimate mass of the asteroid belt and they came up with numbers that are not very far off i don't think uh these numbers are 10 times bigger there's a zero missing but even if we accept this range of 0.004 percent to 0.04 percent this doesn't really make a difference we're talking about less than one percent of earth's mass oh yeah yeah Th this is substantially less than earth's mass okay yeah so our range is low 0.004 percent to high 0.04 percent yeah <laughs> okay that's, that's good numbers. You've got a range of yep. tiny compared to Earth. Okay. Regardless. But you said there was a fuckload of gold out there. Yes. 
So there's a few different kinds of asteroids that are out there. There is class C, or type C rather, uh, type S, and type M. Now, the largest type M asteroid that we have located is called 16 Psyche, or just Psyche for short. Okay. It contains about 1% the mass of the asteroid belt. It has a heavy metallic composition, as implied by it being type M. What are the other two letters? What's S? Uh, silica. And C? I forget. Probably carbon? Uh, I know the Cs are usually like comets. They have a lot of dust and oh, ice. ice. Okay. Yeah. Okay, but but not relevant to this discussion. Okay. No, not really. But the, the, the types are about material classifications, and type M are highly metallic. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this asteroid is so large, it is actually believed by some astronomers to be the stripped core of a protoplanet. That sounds big. Yes, it's quite big. And we can only really do analysis on the surface of it right now. There is a mission to launch a satellite uh, or probe or whatever you want to call it, a, a thing to go out there and investigate. It's going to be launched sometime next year. It is going to catch up to Psyche in 2026. But yeah, we're going to send out a, a satellite to do more in-depth analysis of it. We can only really examine its surface, which appears to be dominantly iron and nickel. Okay. So so it's one heavy chonker of a rock. Oh, yeah, very much so. Uh, because it is so large and so obviously iron and nickel, that's why they're like, oh, yeah, protoplanet. But if we apply the estimates that we had gotten from the U.S. Geological Survey about the amount of gold that is in typical meteors to this stone, this uh, asteroid, then we can get a range of the amount, like based on its mass, which is provided on the, uh, the Wikipedia article, we can get a range of how much of that is actually going to be gold. Okay, so this rock, according to these numbers you have here, it weighs between 19 and 25 quintillion kilograms. Yes. That's a one followed by a fuckload of zeros. Uh, I think 18. Because it's millions, billions, trillions, quadrillions, quintillions. Yes. So this one object has, I'm going to go ahead and just say 20 quintillion kilos of metal, and you're saying that 8.7 parts per million are gold. Uh, well, we again, we have a range of 0. 0.0003 parts per million to 8.74 parts per million. And I did do the math eight times to figure out, depending on like if we're using the high end of the range or the low end of the range, and also between two ranges uh, that are provided for the potential mass of Psyche. So yeah, I, I produced eight numbers. Okay. And for the sake of brevity, I can just list the lowest and the largest number. On the low end, applying all of these estimates, it would have 1.5. 552 billion metric tons of gold. How much gold is on Earth? That we've, like, pulled out of the ground, I mean. Like, how much gold is in circulation? Far, far less. I do have a USGS link that mentions this directly. About 244,000 metric tons of gold has been found. And... 187,000 has has been been dug dug up. So, this one rock would have more gold than has been mined at all on Earth. Correct. On the low end. Yes. And it's just sitting there in space... The aliens would just need to find the biggest rock in the asteroid belt and melt the gold out of it. Yes. So they just need an oven. (laughs) They need an oven and a spaceship and you get an oven and a spaceship gets you 25 billion kilograms of gold. Why the fuck isn't Elon Musk there right now? I mean, he's too busy launching cars into space, I guess. Yeah, something like that. He's probably working on it. I bet bet he's going to make a claim at that. 
So I have another source that talks about the gold on Earth uh, from West Coast Placer. They are really well sourced, which is why I decided to go for it. I haven't ever heard of them before, but given the amount of sources they got, look pretty good. They do a bunch of math and they arrive at an estimate that there are 122 billion metric tons of gold in the top four kilometers of Earth's crust distributed all over the globe. Say that one more time. Oh. 122 billion metric tons. 122 billion metric tons of gold on Earth. So that's more gold, but it's not nearly as available as this one rock. Okay, and so this this one rock on the low end would be 25% of the gold in Earth's surface. On the high end, and I didn't cover that yet, the high end for Psyche, based on all of our math, is 22.287 trillion metric tons. Well, that's enough gold that we'll start building wires and shit out of it. It'll be so devalued that we'll be like... Fuck jewelry, I'm going to make electronics. Yep. Not that we don't make electronics already, but now we're just gold plating things. We're taking all of our Baghdad batteries and hooking it up to our microchips and just making for that good contact. But this, we could cheaply make gold wire. Yep. Okay. And this is just 1% of the mass in the asteroid belt. And I was going to go through and I was going to do the math for the entirety of the asteroid belt after focusing on Psyche, but I was like, okay, no, I think we get the idea. Yeah. And I cut myself off there. You you find the, the heavy metal rocks in the asteroid belt and you get the gold out of them. Yep. Yeah. And then if you need other heavy metals, which are useful for things, maybe constructing spaceships, you use that too. Because it's not like iron is useless. <laughs> I mean, it's rigid and sturdy and uh, makes steel and... And heck, if you just don't like the natives because they shot you with their, you know, six shooters as you were trying to take their gold, you can drop it on them. So, yeah, why come down to Earth when you can just go to the asteroid belt? Well, not even go to the asteroid belt. Just don't come all the way to Earth. Stop short. Get this thing. Because you're also ignoring the cost to get closer to the sun. Moving further and closer away to a star... I didn't necessarily mean go to the asteroid belt from Earth. No, 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 no. I mean, if you're if you're an alien coming from the outside, right? Mm -hmm. The fuel to get closer to a star, as opposed to just enter a, a, an orbit, you have to spend fuel to slow down relative to the star or start powering straight towards it. But if you miss the star, you wind up going on a big elliptical arc. So the closer you get to a star, the deeper into the star's gravity well you get, the more fuel you have to spend to get there and then to get back out. Just like to get down to Earth from Earth's orbit, you have to spend yes. fuel to get down and fuel to get back up. If you're coming from Zeta Reticuli or wherever, you have to pass by the asteroid belt, decide you're coming to Earth, spend a bunch of fuel to get closer to the sun, spend a bunch of fuel to get down to the ground, spend a bunch of fuel to get back up to orbit, spend a bunch of fuel to get away from the sun. While hauling one of the heaviest elements, yeah. yeah or you just come to our solar system, stay two or three times further out from the sun, grab this rock... And you're probably good. Yep. You're Ugh. certainly better off than coming to Earth and trying to extract it from the complicated mess that is Earth geology. So some counterpoints conspiracy theorists might say. Some might say, well, how do we know they didn't get the gold from the asteroid belt? Well, because this dense gold is right the fuck there. Well, there's a ton of gold still up there, so they didn't. They would have gotten the easy ones. Caveat, we don't know exactly how much gold is in Psyche. We applied a bunch of math and estimates to it, but meteorites that do land on Earth, we do have good numbers on the amount of gold that's contained in them. Yeah, but if Psyche landed on Earth, that would be a... That would be disastrous, yes. Yeah. Extinction-level event. So it's hypothetically possible that aliens already melted this down, took out all the gold, all the stuff they wanted, and put all the nickel and iron back. Specifically from Psyche, but again, we don't have any evidence of that, and good news, we probably, if, if they did do something like that, 
that, I would imagine there'd be signs of it. And if there are signs of it, we'll find out in 2026 when our probe gets up to Psyche and does in-depth analysis of it. Yeah. So we'll be able to tell these people they're crazy in 2026. I mean, we can already be pretty confident that these people are very wrong. We can be more confident in 2026. More evidence. Yep. Ugh. Okay. Okay. We spent a ton of time doing gold math. Yes, we did. Uh, so you've cited the USGS a couple times. You have numbers for how much gold is on Earth. You got westcoastplacer.com for your source for that. Other sources for hosting papers, you've got springer.com, which is uh, a host that you said that you got the uh, asteroid belt math numbers. Uh, I linked to Quora just for quickly asking, at what concentration is gold mining profitable? Just so we could have that point of comparison. Mm -hmm. You've got a link to Cambridge for the mass of the Astro Belt also. And finally, Wikipedia for just the basic information like the mass of 16 Psyche. Yep. Okay. I'm staring at you until you make a joke. No. Good enough. <laughs> so gold math. We're done with that. We'll set that aside for a little bit. You yep. had another topic to dive into? Uh, Nibiru being the 12th planet. So Nibiru is a very complicated thing. It has a lot of claims that are attached to it, and it's got a number of things that are kind of adjacent to it. Most of these things I'm going to be glossing over because the claim that Nibiru is a 12th planet and a lot of the things surrounding that claim, uh, I feel, can be addressed with appropriate context. And just real quick for that context, they do talk about uh, Tiamat and Marduk being other things, celestial objects out there that interact with our solar system and do weird things. And again, I'm just going to gloss over that stuff. Oh, in Nemesis too. Ugh. Just to make sure that we have good context for everyone listening. For people who haven't heard of Nibiru, what would ancient alien enthusiasts say Nibiru is? It is a super-Earth with five Earth masses, so five times the mass of Earth itself, that is on an extremely elliptical orbit, an orbital period of 3,600 years. So what you're saying is, is it takes so long to go around the sun that one year for somebody on Nibiru would be 136 years on Earth. Uh, 3,600 years. 3,600 years? Yes. Oh, I heard the wrong amount. Yeah, 3,600 okay. years for Nibiru to go around the sun. Well, that's oddly convenient. That's like the same amount of time since they built the pyramids ago. Roughly, yes. Oh, I see why these numbers are popular. I suspect that gets one year longer every year. <laughs> Something like that. Okay. Uh, there were a bunch of people, not Sitchin, who did claim that it would return in 2012, and obviously that didn't happen. Sitchin is smarter than to make testable claims. Well, actually, he did make the claim that it would return at some time in, like, 2900. Yeah, but by then he's already cashed all, all of his paychecks. Yes. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so okay. but to, to make matters worse is that Nibiru would, as a part of its extreme elliptical orbit, would get within one AU of our sun. So within the orbital space of the Earth itself. And this would be a problem because allegedly Nibiru is coming back into the solar system to collide with Earth and it's this big doomed thing. Seems like the kind of thing NASA would be all over. Yes, yes. But of course they aren't and the conspiracy theorist says so why? NASA lies is the go-to for these conspiracy theorists. They don't think they can trust anything from NASA. Okay, fine. Anyway, so on the claim that Nibiru is the 12th planet, or even something like Nemesis, oh my god, okay, real quick context on Nemesis. Nemesis is allegedly a brown dwarf that has similar orbital characteristics. That is similarly doomsday, gonna come into the inner parts of the solar system and wreak havoc. So a brown dwarf would be a very small star. That simply hasn't ignited, yes. A lot of the numbers I saw was claiming that it has 17 Jupiter masses. 
Okay. But we would still see this thing, probably, right? Very much so, yeah. Okay. But we would actually probably see its gravitational effects before we saw it. But we haven't seen no. anything that would... Because we, we'd see close. planets in the outer solar system or objects in the Kuiper Belt move around. And the Kuiper Belt is a body of a... You'll all get to the Kuiper Belt. Okay. You'll tell us what the Kuiper Belt is later. But it's more stuff that we know where it is in the solar system. Yeah. Okay. So that context established. Specifically addressing that Nibiru is the 12th planet. The, the natural first question is, okay, well, what are planets 10 and 11? And that's assuming you're counting Pluto. And if you're not, what is planet 9? Uh, the Probably the quick answer to that is people might say you know, Tiamat is one of them. And I don't know. What the fuck is Tiamat? It's another part of... These... They have this whole mythos of fake planets. Yeah, that collided with one another. Oh, so some of them are gone now. Conveniently, yes. And there's no physical evidence at all? And that's uh, implied, yeah. But if planets collided, there'd be a ring or some shit. The, yeah, the, the matter does just disappear. Anyway, moving on. <sighs> the, this is all tangential to the notion of it being a 12th planet. The claim originated from Sitchin himself, who claims that he translated ancient Sumerian, and the Sumerians made the claim that there are 12 planets, at least. I don't, I don't know. Specifically that Nibiru is the 12th planet. Okay, like right there, we already know Sitchin is not exactly good at translating Sumerian. So it's probably just a translation error. Are we sure that he can count to 12? Pretty sure. He hasn't demonstrated much intelligence yet. I mean, okay, granted, granted, 12 is more than the number of fingers he has, but he can lean on his toes. Okay, I'll grant he can count to 20. Yeah, 21, he is male. <laughs> so with that question in mind, like what are these planets? It is very helpful to understand the context for why Pluto is no longer a planet. How much do you want me to step in here and say stuff? <laughs> so what do you want to say about Pluto's planethood? Uh, it's a dwarf planet. Yeah. I mean, they, they just added extra categorization. And if we want to, like, get angry at someone, we can get really angry at Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he'll take the blame. He will even argue with you about it on Twitter. Mm -hmm. But him and a bunch of other astronomers got together and even had a vote, and they're like, let's discuss some terminology. And it's not a matter of, like, he's saying Pluto doesn't exist. It's just there's a bunch of other objects that if Pluto's a planet, these other things probably ought to be planets, too. Yeah. So they adjusted the definitions and said, okay, a planet has to be big enough that it's round. A planet planet has to be big enough that it clears out its orbit around a star, and it just so happens that neatly lines up with the categories of things we see in nature. Because Pluto is small enough, it doesn't really clear out its uh, space around the star. No. There's other bullshit in its orbit. It is big enough to be round, but there's other objects that are almost as big as Pluto that aren't round. There's even one object that is just slightly smaller than Pluto in diameter, but is more massive than Pluto. What a show-off. Just being more dense? Yeah. Which one's that? Eris. Oh. Oh, I didn't know we had good numbers on the mass of Eris yet. But there's, uh, what is it? Eris, Pluto, Charon, and Makemake, right? They're the ones out in the Kuiper Belt? And oh. there's more than that, but yeah. But I just mean the really big ones. But yeah, but there's like four big ones out there. And then we have in the inner solar system, crap, I can't remember it now. Ceres. Ceres, thank you. And Ceres is big and spherical, and if you were standing on it, it would have like one-tenth Earth gravity. You know, you'd believe you're on a planet. So, I mean, if Pluto's a planet, Ceres is a planet, Aries is a planet. So, yeah, they make a new category for dwarf planets, 
or we have like a trillion fucking planets. That's the argument. Yeah, that's the the quick and easy version of it. So Pluto was first discovered in 1930, and they were pretty quick to give it a planet designation because it was seemed big enough and it was orbiting the sun. So yeah, why not? And we had planet fever going on back then. It was, you know, the late 1700s and the early 1800s where we discovered Uranus and Neptune, right? Uh, something like that, yeah. Because for the longest time, we only had the, the innermost six. Like we had out to Saturn for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Uranus and Neptune came together after advancements in telescope technology a little bit later. So because... Yeah, we needed those advancements because they are not visible to the naked eye under any circumstance. Yeah, but if you just happen to have the knowledge of where to look and a pair of binoculars, you can see Jupiter, the Galilean moons, so, you know, Ganymede, Io, Europa. You can see those around Jupiter, Mm. and you can see Saturn and its very big and obvious ring with just a fairly mundane pair of binoculars. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I bought some binoculars for paintball, and I went out and actually found both of those in the sky. Mm -hmm. And they're like 10x zoom. They're not amazing, but, you know, I could see these things. So, as far as, like, finding large bodies in the solar system goes, it was pretty quiet after Pluto's uh, discovery and classification. So, in this search for large bodies, did they just get quiet after they found your mom? Damn. (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) Uh. So, in 1992, they discovered the first object that they identified as belonging to the Kuiper Belt. This was originally labeled 1992 WB1, and it was renamed later to 15760 Albion. Albion? I'm bad at pronunciation. Dude, it's a it's a body of ice that nobody gives a shit about. Well, they just numbered it, man. Nobody cares. <laughs> so, this was the first of many. Uh, it was actually the very next year in 1993 that they discovered the next five trans-Neptunian objects, and just skipping ahead ever so slightly for this one detail so transneptunian objects those are just any objects out past neptune right yeah and as of 2018 we have discovered and cataloged over 2,000 of these objects. What are the qualifications to get into this catalog? Is it just any object we find or any object over a certain mass? Or uh, I didn't see much. Like, if it's detectable, if it has an orbit, if it's clearly gravitationally locked to our sun, then uh, then yeah, and it's beyond Neptune. Okay, so, so that implies our gear is good enough to see it. So it implies a certain minimum of size, but we're not certain what that is. Depending on how far out it is, which another fun thing that i'll cover later okay we have discovered a shitload of these trans-neptunian objects an absolute shitload of them and even before we got to 2000 we were steadily discovering more and more and people were starting to wonder like okay well how do we like do we want to redefine planet are any of these qualifying as planets and for a while it was pretty simple because these objects were uh, most of them were much smaller than pluto and people were just like eh it's not bigger than pluto whatever we don't care And that was fine up until the discovery of Eris in 2005. The initial observations of Eris, we thought that it was actually larger than Pluto. That turned out to be wrong. It's slightly, marginally smaller than Pluto. But again, like I said earlier, it is more massive. And when people initially thought that it was larger than Pluto, they're like, well, okay, hold on. Is this Planet X? There was a few media outlets that were actually calling it Planet X. Some context for what Planet X is. This is more conspiracy theory stuff. <laughs> Do you want to cover yeah, this? or Go for it. Just back in like the 90s, 80s, and early 2000s, a bunch of people thought there was another planet out there, and they were hypothesizing various things, but sometimes hypothesizing it would have life on it, and it would be gigantic, and it would be affecting gravity in certain ways. And We had some anomalous readings and various things of 
of the outer solar system, and we thought there might be a planet out there modifying Neptune's or Pluto's orbit, and there's just a lot of unanswered questions. And Planet X was supposed to answer all these unanswered questions, and then we found Eris instead. That about right? The two, aside from the name, are really not all that connected, but yes. Okay. Some media people were like, oh yeah, it's X is 10, and this is going to be the 10th planet, and hey, there's these other people who respond really, really well when we put Planet X in our headlines. Yeah, there was like tabloids claiming shit about Planet X and some people claimed alien stuff. about It's stuff people don't talk about anymore because when people are super wrong from yesteryear, we just don't even remember. Yeah. But Planet X was the subject of a bunch of stupid conspiracy theorist stuff from back then. So So whatever. A bunch of astronomers dismissing all these extra trans-Neptunian objects as being just, okay, well, it's not bigger than Pluto. It's, It's not even close to Pluto's size. So how can we call it a planet? Now having something that doesn't fit that they're like okay well okay does that mean we definitely call this a planet and the rate at which we were finding more and more of these trans-neptunian objects they weren't dumb they knew that if they were to go on ahead and rubber stamp that that there was going to not be long until there was planet 11 or 12 and then they're like well okay hold on do we want to do that does that make sense so they're finally forced to confront a more sane definition for what a planet is and isn't and that's when they came up with the rules that you described uh so Before they came to that resolution, though, there were a lot of discussions. Oh, yeah. And they proposed a lot of different things. Uh, People wanted to just give the uh, Eris the 10th planet designation and be done with it. Other people wanted to go one further because they're like, oh, yeah, that is a little bit inconsistent for us to just stop there. Let's make uh, Charon. Yeah. Pluto's partner. Yep. Let's, Let's make Charon and Ceres planets, too. Just bring it up to a 12-planet system. Like, well, that's not great. So is this where Nibiru comes in as the 12th thing, or? Not quite. We're kind of getting lost in the weeds, but okay. It's just a history lesson tech. Sure. If they started just giving away these planet designations, then there would be a lot of them. And so, especially if uh, Charon is labeled as a planet, going off of similar diameters and masses, then Makemake, Sedna, Gongong, Kuar? and about our moon? Yeah. Uh, then also Orcus from the, the other list I was listing off. They ended up settling on uh, the, the key part of what makes a planet a planet is that it clears its local neighborhood of debris. That is the key component that made Pluto lose its designation. But if we're leaving it at just that, then, I mean, that's a pretty easy thing to uh, to detect for the most part. There are some caveats to that. Again, get to that in a moment. But as anything that's Neptune in or closer, even a, a little bit ways out of Neptune, depending on its size, is we're going to be able to see something that's able to clear out its local neighborhood. We'll see a big gap in those thousands of objects you mentioned in the Kuiper Belt. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, if we're leaning on that definition, there's pretty definitively just eight. But if we're not leaning on that definition, there's catastrophically more than 12 so it's just it's it's a nonsensical claim when you're looking at the facts of modern astronomy well i agree with you there that if we're sticking rigidly to the definition of planet nibiru wouldn't be a planet but if it were some big ass thing that had a 3600 year orbit maybe it wouldn't clear this stuff out maybe it still exists maybe it would cause problems it's not like ancient Sumerians cared about our modern definitions of planet. Well, there's other problems oh, with yeah. this. Lay into them. <laughs> Soon. Okay. But no, the it's not that I necessarily disagree with you, but it's more that, okay, well, we're making the presumption that these were a people that were deceptively advanced. And 
we were weighing that possibility against the possibility that someone just fabricated things like Tiamat and Nibiru and um, Arduk and just said, like, oh yeah, those are extra planets and we'll just call it the 12th and, and be done. Like, And we have real physical evidence that like, hey, if there was a planet out here, we'd expect less of this bullshit to be in the Kuiper Belt. We're weighing physical evidence versus one dude who's already known to be a liar fabricating something. Yeah. So it's just, it's arbitrary. And it doesn't make sense with the facts that we have. It would be much more, it'd be much less. I mean, even, granted, they may not care about our definitions, but there would have to be some kind of classification. And it just, the number 12 doesn't really make sense with any intelligible classification that we have based on what we now know. Oh, I see what you're getting at. There's no reason to call Nibiru the 12th planet based on any physical pattern or property we can actually observe. Yeah. So Sitchin probably made it up. Yeah. It just... So uh, no matter how we look at it, Sitchin made it up. Yeah. Yeah. It's just... Yeah. It's made worse by the other details, like the the size of... No, the mass, rather, of uh, Nibiru and its extreme orbit, uh, which I'll cover in a moment. But uh, just as a, a fun little thing, I did put a the list of trans-Neptunian objects wiki article in our show notes. And there is so much here. This isn't even a complete list. These are just the numbered trans-Neptunian objects, and there's a whole other separate list for non-numbered trans-Neptunian objects. Cool. Yes. Is there anything that people should specifically look for if they want to explore that? Is there anything interesting to look at? Uh, they do have a image where they show the, comparatively, like the sizes of different trans-Neptunian objects. Oh, cool. So we can see a bunch of them and see which ones are like round and what they might look like. Yeah, roughly. Cool. So I can see Charon and Pluto up in the corner. There's Eris. There's Humeyamea. And it's like weird football shapes spinning end over end nonsense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a ton of them. These are just the biggest ones. Yeah, the ones that are big enough to mostly be round. If Humeyamea wasn't spinning so fast, it would be round. Okay, well, that's that is pretty cool. Say the biggest ones that we have confidence in their size about. There are other ones of comparable sizes to like to like Sedna, for example, but they're weird and we don't have as much information about them. Okay. Anyway. So our sources for that is you've got space.com on the history of Pluto. You've got the Wikipedia article on Albion, uh, that first Kuiper Belt object we found, that first, yep. yeah. and then uh, the Wikipedia list of trans-Neptunian objects. What's uh, the next thing you wanted to dive into? So it's still about Nibiru, but uh, for reasons that if I had to recall, I would be unable to. I separated them out into separate claims about Nibiru, but the notion that Nibiru is on a collision course with Earth. Well, it doesn't exist, so of course it's going to collide with Earth. For something to, that doesn't exist, I can equally make the statement, of course, it won't collide with Earth. Yeah, but then you're not using conspiracy theorist logic. I mean, do your own research. Come on. I, I, I it did. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when conspiracy theorists tell me, do your own research. And I'm like, dude, I just cited 15 sources. What do you think I didn't do my own research for? <laughs> right. Like, oh, but you didn't see if like the people vetting them are on the up and out. Okay, let's just go straight into this. So again, five Earth masses comes within one AU. Of, of the sun. sun or of Earth? Of the sun. Okay. For reference, an AU is an astronomical unit. It's just the distance between the Earth and the sun on average. Yep. It's smaller than a light year. It's bigger than a mile. It's reasonable to measure things in AU because the Earth actually is pretty close to the sun. And then the 3,600-year the orbital period. These are things that have been claimed directly by Sitchin. So I did some quick looking around for trying to... Uh, initially, I was actually trying to look for simulations, Nibiru sim simulations. I'd go figure most of the people that are bothering to simulate nibiru are people i really don't want to use as a source <laughs> 
Okay. Uh, there was one person who was using Universe Sandbox to simulate it instead, and he didn't appear to be in on any of this. He was just like messing around. But like, I don't think Universe Sandbox is going to have the precision to to give real information and insights here. For reference, Universe Simulator is a video game where you simulate the solar system. You can do things like see what happens if two Earths collide or, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. What if I take this uh, this Mountain Dew can and launch it at Earth at the speed of light? And you can see what happens. Yep. You have to import a Mountain Dew can, but there's a community of people that make objects. And you can throw them at each other and yeah, put them in orbits around each other and stuff. It's silly fun, but it's not a scientific instrument. Uh, so, unfortunately, I wasn't able to find really good videos on simulations that I found to be credible. Suck. But I did find a few others. Uh, did find Cosmophobia. They have, well, they're a website that's dedicated to taking irrational fears about the cosmos and addressing them. We uh, discussed them in our last episode on this topic. Fun. But they have a page on Nibiru. They cover the poor translations from Sitchin. They're like, yeah, no, this guy, he's not good at translating. Don't trust his translations. And then they took the information that Sitchin did provide about Nibiru and just applied them to Kepler's laws. And so Kepler, that guy who knows a few things about how orbits work. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like Johannes Kepler. He has like this big telescope named after him. Yeah, that yeah, guy. That guy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, the guy whose uh, equations we, we still use to go everywhere in the solar system yeah. and beyond. Yeah. Him and Newton did some uh, heavy lifting for NASA in the beginning there. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he kind of knows what he's talking about. We've uh, actually tested his math and his predictions and working out great for us so far. Yep. Got us to the moon and stuff. Yeah. And beyond. Way yep. beyond. Yep. Okay. So yeah, Kepler's laws. We plugged in what we know about air quote no about nibiru into the equation and that equation gives us a uh, the farthest reach of nibiru's orbit would have to be at 469 au so how far out is pluto in au for example uh looks like at its worst just shy of 50 okay so the earth is one au mercury is about 40 percent of an au so about 0.4 au away Venus is about 0.7 AU away, and Mars is about 1.5 or 1.6 AU away from the sun. Mm -hmm. So just to give us perspectives, right? So Mars is about 60% further, Venus is about 30% closer to the sun. Pluto is 50 AU out already. So now you're talking about something that is going to be 13 times further out? That's that's not right. Nine times further out than Pluto? It's going to be 450 AU out? Yeah, give the exact number. Oh, exactly. 469 AU. Okay. So it's going to be... It's going to be nine times further out than Pluto. Okay. That's worse. Yeah, Pluto out is worse, yes. Yeah, okay. Well, that doesn't both are worse. doesn't even sound like it's still in the solar system. That's uh, about 1% of a light year out there. That's pretty fucking far. Okay. Yeah, that is indeed nuts far. No, but the nearest star other than the Earth is like the Proxima star system, and they're like four or five light years away. So this is still yeah. clearly much closer to us. So this doesn't eliminate it completely. No, but the okay. next detail does. Oh. <laughs> If we have that kind of an extreme orbit where it goes that far out and then comes within one AU yeah, and where it's modifying its orbital or its distance 450 fold, it's going to be much slower out there and much faster in here. Yes. Because that's how orbits work. Yes. Yeah. And when it's reaching that peak velocity as it's wrapping around the sun, it will be moving at pretty much the solar escape velocity. Okay. For reference, the escape velocity of any gravity well is the speed at which if you're traveling in a straight line uh, and you're at that speed or higher, 
that gravity well won't ever stop you. You'll just escape it. So like the escape velocity here on Earth is about 11 kilometers a second. So if you can get a rocket that shoots you up at 12 kilometers a second, you just don't come back down, ever. You just go up. You do wind up losing a bunch of speed because the, the planet is still pulling you, right? So, you know, you might have way less than that speed when you're out there. So how fast is it going? I believe they said it is about 42 kilometers per second. 42 kilometers per second. Yeah. That's not actually all that fast. The Earth's traveling about 10,000. Yeah, Earth. The Earth? Yeah, yeah, okay. So so we're, we're in the same regime. I, I converted it to kilometers per hour, and I've got the Earth going about 110 or 107,000 kilometers per hour, and this thing's going about 150 or 160,000 kilometers an hour. Okay. Yeah. So it's going about an extra 50% faster than us around the sun. And its orbit is extremely eccentric, and uh, okay, there was another claim by another guy. Yeah, that seems to be barely possible by the physics of it so far. Barely possible. If we are to presume that there's some fuzz in the numbers, and that fuzz ends up actually being on the lower end, then it's technically possible okay. when you don't account for other things disturbing its orbit mm. because its orbit is exceedingly eccentric. And eccentric is, a, is an astronomical technical term. It just means not round. So Earth's orbit is non-eccentric because it's a very round orbit, not perfectly round, as compared to Pluto or Neptune's orbit, which are slightly more eccentric, and then compared to an orbit like Halley's Comet. Halley's Comet has a very eccentric orbit because it's near the Sun, closer to the Sun than the Earth some of the time, and then way the fuck far out in the distant solar system the rest of the time. So this thing would be flying in a big ellipse around the Sun, and just barely able to do it as per physics. So that's interesting. I would have expected this to have categorically ruled it out, but okay. And what is the escape velocity of our sun? About 42 kilometers per second. Oh, and this thing's traveling about 40. That's why I said, like, if, just we, barely, presu just barely. if we presume fuzz, it by a hair is technically possible. Okay, okay. So this is implausible, because there's no evidence for it, there's no cleared out space for it, and we've never seen it. And that's just accounting orbital velocity when it's near the sun. Okay, yeah. yeah. Again, when it's interacting with other gravity wells as it's coming into the inner planets... It would do something to the other planets. Jupiter would mess it up pretty bad. Jupiter would actually probably disturb its orbit enough to eject it out of the solar system. That makes a ton of sense, actually. Yeah. Because if it just falls a little bit towards Jupiter then passes on by, it's picked up extra speed, and now it's traveling 43 kilometers a second, and off it goes. Yeah. Okay. So that is implausible. I agree, but it's still technically possible, because what if the orbital periods just all happen to line up, so it's never done that? Well, if this was a permanent resident of the solar system, that kind of disturbance would occur at some point in the astronomical history of the solar system. The only real way to give it benefit of the doubt is to presume that Nibiru is a captured rogue planet, and even then, it would probably only survive about three or four orbits around the sun. So then, for people not up on all the astronomical terms, a rogue planet is a planet not around a star. The idea you just proposed is that we have a rogue planet wandering the galaxy, and our sun just kind of picked it up, and it happened to be traveling at just a reasonable pace to go around our sun. Okay. I was imagining some sort of situation where it happened to just be in a uh, in an orbital pattern where it just happened to not match. Like uh, the different Galilean moons. They happen to have periods that match up with each other where for one orbit of the innermost one, the next one makes two orbits and then the one outside that makes four orbits. So they all happen to line up in this nice little gravity-based thing. But I, I don't know that that could happen with whatever Jupiter's orbit is and this thing's orbit is. It is the prevailing it, belief of actual astronomers that, you know, it can't. Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, it was already the prevailing belief of, astron of, of astronomers that this is bullshit. So yeah, we're just layering on 
layers of implausibility, but nothing that categorically rules it out. And I'm just going for that categorically, categorically ruling it out because it is so nice to just tell these people, look, that's impossible. Next. And ugh, this is gross because each one of these layers is like 99% chance it doesn't happen. 99% well, chance it doesn't happen. When you're talking about something that is potentially as much as 400 AU out, even something that has five Earth masses, um, we would have seen modern it. technology, actually, no. We, we, we might not have seen it? We, 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 we could miss it. If it's 400 AU out and five times the, the mass of Earth, I mean, it's possible. Yeah. So really what we're relying on right now is that Sitchin is full of shit. And he's the primary source for all of this. I mean, everything else is pretty categorically ruled out. I mean, and yeah. we've shaved off like, all right, well, sure, we haven't categorically removed it, but we've removed a 99% of the possibility. And then within that, we've removed another 99% of the possibility. Yeah. Sure, we haven't hit zero, but... It's just nice to hit zero, because for a bunch of these things, we just can go straight to zero. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so there was um, a fun little quote from Mike Brown, who was on an interview on the Discovery Channel about this topic. So he says that it's not impossible for the sun to have a... A distant planetary companion such an object would have to be lying very far from the observed regions of the solar system to have no detectable gravitational effect on the other planets a mars sized object could lie undetected at 300 au jupiter sized object this is a little ridiculous could lie undetected at 30000 au to travel and this is him just talking about the the 2012 doomsday stuff we couldn't detect it therefore it must be far out there if it were to catch up to the earth uh so to cover like 1000 au in 2 years because he was making this in 2009. He was talking about the 2012 Doomsday Belief. The object would have to be moving at 2,400 kilometers per second, which exceeds the galactic escape velocity. <laughs> See, things like that rule it out. Yeah. This, the, the, for it to be close enough for us to detect it. So all these people saying it's going to show up in 2012. Uh, in 2010, we would have seen it or it would... Or we're missing a giant thing that's going to be highly disruptive and functionally a, a giant solar system-sized bomb. It's going to fly through and disrupt the fuck out of everything. Yeah. So And it wouldn't be in an orbit. It would just fly the fuck out. And they did, of course, move the goalposts, and they said it would happen in 2020, and that didn't happen. Uh, so we, we know it's not going to happen anytime soon because we're not seeing any of those things. But if Yeah, it, if it were close enough that its orbit was coming around, we'd see it. It wouldn't be 450 AU out. It would be inbound. Yeah, he also claims that, or says that the claims made about Nibiru's orbit isn't consistent with orbital mechanics, but he didn't provide a huge amount of detail on exactly how. I'm going to defer to his judgment on that one. I learned my orbital mechanics from Kerbal Space Program. Uh, and he did say that uh, part of this belief is that Nibiru came close to Earth. It came close enough that it caused huge tidal disturbances. It was the cause of the Great Flood. Uh, that would have uh, fucked with our orbit, but we have yeah. a super stable orbit, and we know that because geology in history. Not only that, but he says that if it did get close enough to cause those effects, we very likely would have lost our moon. Yeah, that makes sense. And we still have our moon, so. And our moon has been in a nice, stable orbit for a good long fucking time. Yep. Uh, <sighs> so then, just discarding those kinds of details, I was like, okay, well, of all the trans-Neptunian objects, what comes the closest? Well, none of them come close to the reported mass, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you and think And the reported it. mass is like five Earth masses, right? Correct. And we're talking, like, Pluto is tiny compared to earth it's like a few percent of earth's mass and yep. most of these objects are smaller than pluto yeah yeah okay and so then i started looking at orbital periods because 3600 years is pretty randomly specific uh, i did find one transneptunian object the i'm not going to say it comes close it doesn't uh, but the closest 2012 vp113 is the current designation it is a transneptunian object and it has an orbital period of 4136.24 years and that is the closest of all the objects that i was able to find 500 years longer than what they said 
but it doesn't match any of the other criteria at all. It's nowhere near the mass that they said. It does not come anywhere near Earth's uh, 1 AU orbital distance. It doesn't even get within Pluto's orbit. It orbits around the sun entirely outside of Pluto. <laughs> Trying to like dig deeper into the veracity of these claims. We don't have Pluto as a planet anymore. So the whole planet X, planet 10, 10 planet, whatever. That's not a thing anymore. Now they just call it planet 9. Speculating that there is another large rocky body out there somewhere. But just to make sure I understand you here. Mm -hmm. Nibiru is one category of conspiracy theory nonsense for a planet that's out there. That includes all the Tiamat and the other weird planets that don't definitely don't exist. Yep. Based on Sitchin's lies. Planet X was the late 90s. There's another big planet out there. Milder conspiracy theory stuff. Doesn't really involve Sitchin, but it's just, let's go looking. It doesn't even really need to involve aliens. It's just like, oh, yeah. And then Planet 9 is the new incarnation that brings its own unique set of baggage from Planet X and from Nibiru. Well, near as I can tell, Planet 9 is actually just the new name for Planet X. It doesn't, it's oh. not really tied to conspiracy theories, although it is often co-opted uh, by conspiracy theories. <sighs> it's just that this notion that there's another rocky body out there okay okay so it's not preposterous they're just it's lacking evidence there is some evidence oh oh interesting so there was a few astronomers out there that noticed the uh some unusual clustering of these orbits they took a look at this uh, not just a chart like this but you know more complicated charts with many more of these objects and they were like well okay these things kind of cluster up in a way that doesn't seem like entirely explainable if it was just arbitrary so it, a lot of astronomers don't really believe that this is good enough i mean it's something it's more than nothing but and like they do say early on if there is like a big rocky body out there you would see the a clustering of orbits and then somebody observed what we actually do and they're like okay well get more evidence and they've had a really tough time getting that evidence they've tried to make guesses based on observations for where this object might be in the sky and then observe there and thus and they've actually made these predictions with enough credibility that they've actually been able to get uh, telescope time with other scientists to do the search so i mean they're not quacks they're not crazy they're they're just putting out a theory that is unlikely but there's some evidence for and they're being pleasant about it so this sounds like how science should work it's like hey i have an idea let's test it if yeah. the test yields result a I'm right. If test yield result B happens, I'm wrong. Here's the experimental procedure. Which one, which outcome do we get, A or B? <laughs> yeah, it sounds That's what it sounds fine. like science. It yeah. sounds really disconnected from the Planet X stuff I've heard of. But Unfortunately, so far, every time they've tried to isolate a portion of the sky they believe where this object would be and observe it, they haven't seen anything. Well, why is that unfortunate? It just means there isn't a planet there. I mean, I guess who doesn't want another planet? It's I free real estate. Planet. <laughs> I want another planet. Yeah, so they they keep updating based on additional observations. They they get take more information in. They update their model, and they've updated a few times. They updated it in 2019, uh, and then they updated it again in August this year. So there's a very very recent update to their model, and they think that it would have about six Earth masses. It would have a semi-major axis of about 380 AU. What is uh, the semi-major axis is the size of the orbit? It, it's pretty much the average orbit. Okay. Uh, but, okay, so the perihelion... As close as it gets to the sun. Yep. That one would be 300 AU uh, or you know, plus 85 minus 60. So it'd be as close within their model, with the range of their model, the closest it would be would be about 240 AU. 
So four times further out than Pluto. Yeah, really, really far out there. They even have numbers for orbital inclination. I have a link that goes directly to these numbers. Now, something that is six Earth masses, that's difficult to hide at only 240 EU. But I mean, if it was on the high end of their range for the distance from the sun, and it was on the low end of their range for Earth masses, you're starting to get into that fuzzy area where our ability to detect it is questionable. And that's one of the things they're they're relying on to, to keep going with this. And, you know, maybe we'll find it maybe we probably won't that's just there there isn't enough if i had to make a prediction right now i'd say probably not unfortunately there's not enough to make that claim but they're still looking and that is the closest thing that i could find to anything relating to any of these conspiracy theories but even then like the the notion that it comes into the inner planets no that that just that isn't anywhere that doesn't happen okay that uh feels like a much more categorical rejection for these kinds of things where scientists aren't looking at all for anything like Nibiru. They're looking for this other planet that has very different orbital characteristics. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So it's 11.30 at night, and in the interest of making sure I make it through this recording, here goes a monster. So we have one other source that we sort of just touched on and we didn't dig into for this. So it's just this Ancient Aliens debunked movie that we watched. It was a good three hours of documentary. Oh, how much do you want to discuss this? Because we're uh, we're pretty long on time as it is. Yeah, we are. I mean, it's, it's a good documentary. I'd recommend people watching it if they're dealing with people who habitually bring up Ancient Aliens. You can just go to ancientaliensdebunked.com for this documentary. But uh, they touch on different parts of the History Channel's Ancient Aliens series, Mm -hmm. and they address individual concerns they have with their storytelling. Because the Ancient Aliens series on the History Channel, they're damn dirty liars. Yeah, there's there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. It's to the point where the conspiracy theorists don't even believe them most of the time. And this group goes through and lays out really clean, categorical explanations for each of these different kinds of lies. And they do a decent job citing their sources. It could be a lot better. So we were able to go through and find most of their sources and relate that to most of the points that they use to debunk ancient aliens. But then there's some where they don't do the best job. So we couldn't lean on it a ton for this episode. Mm-hmm. They they did a really good job highlighting at least logical fallacies where the ancient alien people would say, ah, there's no way this thing could be built. Look at all these big, strong men pulling this rock with ropes and couldn't move it a couple inches. Then the ancient alien debunked people are like, yeah, look at this guy who's being clever. <laughs> and by himself, he lifted this 15-ton rock using nothing but scrap Sticks. plywood. Yeah, yeah th- th- that guy was really clever, too, because he's like, look, I just... I, I wedged something under a corner of the rock and I stood on the other side and lifted yeah. it up and it, just kept on seesawing it and exploding that gap, that the tiny, tiny gap that was exposed when. Yeah, and he just kept putting a bunch of wood it. in the middle of this. It was he, the guy was clever. Yeah. yeah, and just tons of things like that where ancient aliens would say it's impossible to cut this piece of rock. How could you ever do it? And then somebody else is like, "Look, we rubbed sand on it and we abraded it away. We're cutting it." Or the the jets, they're like, "Oh, it, there's no bird that has its wings on the underside." Clearly, it's like. Oh, why stop at birds? Yeah, it's clearly a fish. They've, they've done other fish. It's just so many dumb things. And we watched it, and it took it took three hours of our life to watch it. It was, wasn't terrible, but so much of it was 
was ancient alien stuff. And they just went through and debunked these things categorically one at a time. And just how dishonest the ancient aliens things was. We shouldn't go over this. We'll just link to the source. If you're dealing with people who think ancient aliens is true, watch this. This is pretty good. Yeah, and it has the benefit of being able to convey things visually, which we don't have. And there's a lot of visual elements to debunking the stuff. Yeah, and uh, one thing I do dislike about this source... This person was a a through-and-through believer of the ancient aliens' ideas, which is great that now he's debunking it, and he knows how to debunk it and how to make that connection with other ancient alien believers and what evidence he believes, but it also means he's highly credulous and believes all other sorts of nonsense. So there's a couple times where he veers off away from evidence, and when he steers away from evidence, he says some really dumb shit. But that's five, ten minutes of these three hours? Yeah, that's yeah. Most of it is he's actually going over reasonable sources. Yeah. When he's hitting sources, even someone as incapable of, as this guy makes extremely compelling arguments and convinced me of a bunch of stuff, convinced Mako of a bunch of stuff. Yeah. So I, don't know, I, I take that as a lesson uh, uh, to stick close to the evidence or stick close to my areas of expertise. Because when this guy was talking about, what, flood myths mostly? Because <laughs> he started talking about, well, this is why there's a worldwide flood. And we're like, dude, there was never a worldwide flood. We just did the research for this. We, we have the evidence for that. Yeah. But but the rest of it, he went over and talked about uh, Puma Punku. Puma Punku. Which is this place where they carved a bunch of rocks in South America to make these really interesting structures. Ancient aliens, of course, said, yeah, it's an alien landing site. They discussed the origin of uh, some of these other monuments and sites, the various Incan sites, a place called Baalbek, Easter Island. And just one at a time, the ancient alien episodes, he just debunked these claims one thing at a time. And it's clear that ancient aliens was habitually cherry-picking, lying, or ignoring inconvenient facts. Yeah. Like, it, one one it, lie that ancient aliens made multiple times was several times they said there's no way these things could be moved, there isn't any wood. <laughs> and they ignore that where the rocks are coming from, you know, there's wood in the middle of that path, or that the place was deforested. Like, seriously, if you go to the Wikipedia page for deforestation, they have pictures of Easter Island. And Easter Island is the place with those big face statues out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Yep. Well, the reason it's deforested is they cut down all the trees to move all those big face statues. And the ancient alien people said there's no way to move these ancient face statues because there's no trees. But the ancient face statues are why there are no trees. It's so painful. These people are just so fundamentally dishonest. And when you look at any source for anything related to ancient aliens, it all stems from dishonest people trying to make a buck. Ancient aliens, their motive was to sell advertising on the History Channel. So they just lied and made up fantastical shit. And they did. They made up a whole bunch of shit about crystal skulls or UFOs in art. And again, those things are just debunked in this too. Or the Tolima Jets that you were talking about. There's mm-hmm. this ancient culture in South America that made little uh, jewelry pieces out of, out of silver and gold. And some were clay and other stuff too. But they just were fancy looking animals. And there was one that was a carp or a catfish. And people said, oh, it looks like a jet. And they just made up lies about it too. And they mocked up this model jet and they're like, oh, we didn't alter anything. And they altered like a dozen things. <laughs> yeah, they say we didn't alter anything. And then on the screen, show it completely different. Like it's aerodynamically perfect. Well, what about all those parts you removed? Yeah. Or everyone who's backing this, who's credulous enough to believe this, is following in the footsteps of people who knew they were lying. Right? Zechariah Stitchin is a dishonest just fuckface. And he's deceived a bunch of people who trusted him because when you write a bunch of books, you gain a certain level of credibility just because you've written a bunch of books. Like Joe Rogan. There's no reason to listen to Joe Rogan, but because he has a huge audience and he talks to a huge number of people and he's put out a ton of episodes, he has a certain level of credibility. 
but Joe Rogan's not saying anything deeply insightful or deeply intelligent. He's even occasionally saying damaging things. Occasionally? Like, often. But yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, I don't listen to him. I don't know what all he says. Well, I just hear what's in the headlines. That's why you're not that damaged. Yay! Uh, people listen to things that feel good, not necessarily things that are credible. The more times you hear a, a story, regardless of who it's from, the more likely we all are to believe it. And it might not feel that way. You might feel that you're a hyper-logical, rational person, but take a look at things you learned when you were a child. Right? Re-examine your belief in something core and original. Right? What country and what stories did you hear about the country you were raised in? Right? Like lots of people hear about American exceptionalism who live in the United States. And then I started really digging in. And for me, what really started to chip away my American exceptionalism was comparing America's roads to India's roads. <laughs> it made me stop feeling uh, exceptional about America real fast. <sighs> not that our roads aren't better. It's just if we're exceptional, we better be doing way better than India. And we're not. We're not. And it's just like that for a ton of things where so many of these people have these emotional connections to the liars putting out the, the ancient alien mythos that they take it in a credulous way where they're not vetting it and they feel disaffected by the normal power structures by people like NASA. Like, oh, NASA's hired by politicians, therefore must be liars. So I'm not going to trust NASA. I'm going to trust Sitchin or I'm going to trust who are some of these other lying people. Fucking... Eric Von Daniken? Yes, Eric Von Daniken is another one of these people that puts out books that are just full of shit. Uh, let's go for some gender equality. What's her name? Fucking, she just about went out of business doing it. She's, there it is. Barbara uh, Marciniak. Yep. She used to put out a newsletter just full of ancient aliens bullshit. And it was just bullshit. She appeared to just be fabricating shit and just cashing in. And now that there's not a lot of cash, she's kind of stepped out of the game. And, and these people who are willfully lying... Right? They're making a ton of money by making some sort of emotional connection with people, getting behind the normal critical thinking barriers people have, and then selling them bullshit. And it's, you know, if it were done the way the National Enquirer does it, where it's, you know, read about Bat Boy, give us a couple bucks for some entertainment, that's one thing. We all can appreciate fiction, right? But nobody goes to watch the Avengers movie thinking it's true. These people are putting forward things claiming they're true, and then you wind up with shit like preppers making end-of-the-world-level decisions, wasting their life savings for bunkers to survive you know, a, an Earth-Nibiru collision in 2011. These people are damaging society. They're damaging our ability to handle truth and reality. <sighs> yep. So are there any last things we want to say if people have to deal with? Good luck. These followers? Good luck. That's what you've got. <laughs> I would say if you have to deal with these people, attack their sources. And do it politely, diplomatically if you can. But to a, to a person, everyone putting out these alien astronaut stories are either liars who started it and are making money or have been fooled by the liars making money. It's the two categories of people. There's no, there's no middle ground on this one. This one's really clean and wrapped up. Yep. <sighs> Thanks to Keldar for video and graphics work. And thanks to AlphaWolf294 for transcription. Thanks to all of our Patreon supporters. Our supporters at the Evidence Investigator level or higher include Jared, Ducktape, Keldar, Lazuri78, Stephen Larrabee, and Kaiju Halina. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to like, subscribe, leave a review, or tell a friend. Copyright 2021, Blacktop Studios, Inc. Intro music was slow by Pitex, used with permission.